Hey, Dune Wrestling fans, welcome to another edition of John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight Podcast. It's great to be back for another episode, and today's show will cover the original broadcast of Pro Wrestling Spotlight, which aired on 1240 AM WGBB in West Babylon, New York, which aired in September 1991. Joining me, as always, my co-host, the former managing editor of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, The Wrestler, Inside Wrestling, and other newsstand magazines all those years ago, former executive editor of WCW Magazine, writer and wrestling historian, Bob Smith. Bob, how you doing today? I'm doing just fine, and my fingers are still sore from all the writing I used to do. How's everybody doing? Oh, doing great, doing great. And also in the background, uh, we'd like to say hello to Alex Robertson, reporter for SlamWrestling.net, radio producer for CJAD 800 from Montreal, Canada, Alex Robertson. Alex, how you doing? I'm good. How are you guys? Great. Fabuloso. <laughs> <laughs> feeling uh, feeling good today. It's been a busy week, and we have um, such a just a great show today. It's going to be a, it's our third show. Things are getting smoother. We've got our you know our our distributor all squared away finally, and uh, it's just getting really exciting. Uh, you know, getting our feet wet with the first couple of them. And now I think we're really hitting our stride. Yes, indeed. And today's show is the, the diametric opposite of last week's show. Absolutely. Last week's show was so serious and it was a very serious time. Excuse me. I should say our last edition was the very serious topic of the steroid trials and things like that in wrestling. And now we kind of take a nice right turn and get a little whimsy in here. We get some really interesting interviews and a few clips w- with the person I consider to be the greatest heel of all time. You know who that is, John. Oh, I certainly do. And uh, we'll talk about that in a minute because that was a thrill for me in the history of the program. And even today, knowing that we were able to do that interview, uh, it was just uh, it was just something that uh, warms my heart to this day. Before we get started with this week's show, I want to remind you to check out our Patreon account, which really helps fund the production of this show. You get the entire archives of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show. All the original, uncut, unedited shows are there. You'll also have access to each new podcast several days before they are released without commercials uh, in the podcast. For five bucks a month, you will have access to both the archives and the podcast. There are several other tiers if you want bonus audio, video clips, Vintage 8mm film clips from my archives, photo sets, Zoom calls. And we also mail out each month vintage wrestling magazines from the 60s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, beginning at just $5 a month. This week, uh, we got uh, rare audio that I put up from 1974 with interviews with John Tolis, Rocky Johnson, Pedro Morales, Lou Albano, Freddie Blassie, Larry Henning, so many more. And for patrons, uh, Bob, I don't know if you remember the 1974 Battle Royal uh, that took place in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. I'm right there with you. Probably probably up to that point. Was that a box office record at that point or something? But it was also probably the most famous Battle Royal for about three decades. I mean, that was like, it really put Battle Royals on the map, that particular event, as I recall. 
Yeah, it was uh, it was their annual event at the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles, and uh, they had previous winners like Bruno San Martino and John Tolis, and uh, but this one was really special in '74, and I got to be there live, which was kind of cool. I was invited out there by uh, somebody named Dr. Mike Leno, who oh, yeah. was a, a pen pal and then uh, a vice president of the Blassie fan club. And Mike uh, invited me to Los Angeles to the Battle Royal. I'd never been on an airplane before. I think I was, I was a senior in high school. And uh, and my grandmother gave me the money to go. And I remember the round-trip airfare was 179 bucks uh, to L.A. and back. And uh, got out there uh, and was able to... Um, uh, go to two wrestling shows, that Battle Royal, which was won by Andre the Giant. Right. And that was the big draw. That was huge. He had never been out there before. And uh, we got to see uh, the KOP TV 13 live studio wrestling. Uh, got to see Andre get a haircut uh, in the back, which was kind of cool. Uh, and also stayed, um, Mike was best friends with uh, Richard Dawson's kids. Richard Dawson from Family Feud and Hogan's Heroes. So, Got to spend uh, uh, a couple of nights over at Richard Dawson's house in uh, in Hollywood, and got to see how <laughs> got to see how uh, uh, celebrities live. I remember he had a big zebra waterbed. It was like zebra uh, bedspread. Uh, Richard Dawson. And the day that I was leaving, I asked for a few autographed pictures for my family and. Uh, Signed one for my mom, one for my sister, and, you know, Richard Dawson, I mean, with the English accent. And finally, I asked one for my cousin, Cindy. I'll never forget it. And and he was like, he just looked at me, and he was like, what are you going to do, sell these blanking things? And blank <laughs> was a curse word. Blank. So that was my impression of Richard Dawson. But, it, but anyway, I found a cassette that had all of the promos leading up to the Battle Royal, and uh, it was the clarity is unbelievable. And then on the same tape, there was um, March, uh, the, the WWWF TV show promoting March of 1974 at Madison Square Garden. So all those promos are on there. So these are the types of things that patrons get. Uh, and speaking of patrons, we want to shout out some of the newest patrons since uh, our last episode. Uh, Bob Dennis, Morgan Williams, Jay Farrar. Am I uh, pronouncing that correct? Farrar. Jay, what is it? Farrar. Farrar. Jay, which is Alex's boyfriend, uh, came, became a patron. Thank you, Jay. Oh, boy. That was kind of cool. And Bob, <laughs> you also came in as a patron as well. I, mean, I have been a patron before. This is my second uh, second time around the woodpile, so please. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, also, Joe Tansini. All of these folks joining since our last episode. A special hello to the executive producer tier member, Jeremy Priest. And finally, hello to Christian Theodore from Dover, New Hampshire. And uh, Christian uh, is also the guy that is our merchandise partner. And uh, we're coming up with a new T-shirt design uh, for the new show. Right now, there are uh, several T-shirts, caps, autographed posters, Matt Memories T-shirts. Just go to tinyurl.com. And that is uh, slash PWS store. A quick update on our upcoming taping schedule and plans. We're catching everybody up with these first few shows. And we'll continue to do that each week until we get to the point where each new episode will cover the original Pro Wrestling Spotlight 
that had 30 that aired 30 years ago to the week of this show. And by the end of this month, by Thanksgiving weekend, we'll be caught up. So lots of great shows coming up, including this one. And uh, Bob, I tell you, we have some amazing guests for today's show which covers September of 91. Uh, during that month, we had so many great guests, Cactus Jack, Dave Meltzer, Jesse the Body Ventura, making his very first appearance on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And the one that uh, I uh, was most excited about back then, uh, his first and only appearance ever on Pro Wrestling Spotlight, Classy Freddie Blassie. Well, first of all, I'm still picking myself up off the floor thinking of you at the <laughs> Olympic Auditorium Battle Royal with Andre the Giant, the yeah. one that was on the cover of about 800 wrestling magazines at the time. Yes. Uh, I can't believe it. You have had some wrestling career, my friend, from the time you were a kid to now. It's, it's, it's the places you've been, as Dr. Seuss would say. So well done. I'm, I'm floored by that bit of trivia there. But yeah, this, this particular show features the great Freddie Blassie, the first wrestler to give me nightmares when I was about 13 or 14 years old, watching him on WRGB biting the heads <laughs> open of his opponents and getting a big red X put on the screen. They censored the uh, footage. Uh, Alex, if you can believe this, and this is a documented fact, p wrestling fans had heart attacks watching Fred Blassie on television. John, yep. maybe you can explain that a little better than I can. Yeah, he, uh, he actually... Um and allegedly killed some fans in Japan that were getting heart attacks when he was wrestling their legend, Ricky Dozan. And, uh, you know, Blassie says there were like 20 or something people died, but, you know, there, there might have been a couple, but that's still, you know, scaring someone into a heart attack is, uh, is really um, uh, an extreme situation, but Blassie was the extreme heel. Well, you, ha you have to think back to his level of violence in the ring, which we're all kind of used to now, but his level of violence in the ring was kind of unseen and unheard of at the time he was doing it. He really was a trailblazer in terms of, I don't know, the graphic extremes he would go to. I mean, he, yeah. he would file his teeth before his matches. He would, uh, there were photos of him biting a house. Have you seen those photos? He's literally biting a door frame. And I'm like, no, he's biting, I, didn't see, he, I didn't see those. Yes, that's, that's floating around the internet. You can find that one pretty easily. He's biting a door frame. I don't like know why Alex he's doing biting, it. Alex is biting an apple right now. Well, yeah, yeah it's a little more savory <laughs> than than lead paint, I guess. But yeah, but yeah, Blassie. I mean, he used to actually follow those teeth for yeah. real. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. let me ask you a question. You were the president of the Blassie fan club. Yes. Did he bite his opponents? Blassie. I mean, yeah, he, really. He actually didn't just bite on his, his opponents. He gnawed on their heads. Like he'd be just like chomping up and down on somebody's yes. forehead. He was gnawing your, on it. One of your clips has him battling Chief J. Strongbow. Yes. You can see it in graphic detail. Yes, a very a good close-up on that. Yeah. Oh, what wrestlers have done to make a living. And and that's what scared the heck out of people. And, yes. uh, you know, more times than not, he draw blood. And some of those battles he had with the original Sheik in Los Angeles were just incredible bloodbaths. And, uh, you know, there was really nobody like Freddie. And I'm so well, happy that uh, we have him today. The thing about Fred was it was more than just the violence. Even if he wasn't in a, in a mode where he was that violent or he had a different program going on or something – 
His gift of gab was like something from the heavens. He could insult an audience and get them enraged just with a few lines mm -hmm. in such a way that people showed up to hate him in record numbers. I believe he would, up till probably about 1980, he may have been the number one box office attraction in the United States if you add up all the totals of like the Tolos feud and matches like that. Mm -hmm. I think he may have been the biggest star in wrestling for about five years in that period. Yeah, and then in the early 60s, of course, when he had that uh, that feud with Bruno, San Martino, when he caused that riot at Roosevelt Stadium in New Jersey. I mean, the fans uh, rioted because uh, Blassie kicked Bruno low. Bruno got counted out, and the fans went berserk. They just rioted like crazy, and he had to escape within an inch of his life to get out of there. But that's what he caused. He caused this incredible heat. And that's why it was so um, interesting to see the fans in Los Angeles when he became a babyface. And he was loved as much as he was hated. So he was loved in Los Angeles at the same time that he was uh, causing this havoc on the East Coast as a heel. Mm -hmm. It was really, it's really an incredible story on a guy that was, was older. He wasn't a spring chicken. Uh, he he well, wrestled uh, late in life, but um, he uh, he he really uh, was uh, so unique in what he did. Very realistic. Well, late in his career, I know his knees got bad, and yes. I believe, as legend has it, you can either vouch for this or correct me that he was kind of forced to retire in California because of an age requirement there. That's like true. He, I think he was fifty-five. You and they wouldn't let him. They, they wouldn't let him. They wouldn't license him. They felt right. he was too old. Right. That may have been part of the reason he came east. I'm not sure. But yeah, because he wanted to work, and he was enamored. I mean, the McMahon family loved him. I mean, Vince Jr.'s kids, Stephanie and Shane, they, they were like he was like their grandfather. But <laughs> Vince McMahon Sr. made a promise, and Vince McMahon Jr. Uh, kept up, lived up to it, that Blassie would always be taken care of because he was just so enamored by the family. And he had a, uh, uh, even after he got out of the uh, ring, as far as a manager, he stayed on as an ambassador until the time he passed away. For sure. I, you know, I live in Queens and he used to visit not too far from where I live, a either veterans or homeless shelter in Long Island city. I believe it was a veterans shelter. And he used to come and, and just, be there with all these older gentlemen who are down on their luck. And he used to do it as a matter of routine. I mean, yeah. that's the kind of person he was when you strip away all the wrestling imagery that mm -hmm. surrounded him. And had, uh, and had basically the most impeccable handwriting I've ever seen. Is that right? So neat and clean. When I got my first letter from him uh, in uh, March of uh, 73, um, it was just, you know, just happy. And I still have those letters and his handwriting was just impeccable. And, you know, I'd, I'd be surprised. And I get a postcard from Japan from Freddie and hey, I just wanted to touch base. And this is what I'm doing. And, and he'd always kind of tip me off. I'll be coming to the East coast for an extended stay. And so he kept in touch with me when I had the fan club with him. And, um, he was always somebody that cooperated, uh, just to the fullest. And, you know, he got me backstage very first time I ever went backstage. And um, there's an interesting clip of uh, this on for our patrons. Uh, I did a, a couple of TV pilots, small little uh, five minute TV pilots. Uh, and uh, one of which is the day I met Fred Blassie. So that's up, up on Patreon.com slash John Arizzi now. And it's a 
it's uh, my story about the day I met Freddie with uh, photographs and the letter and the film I shot of him against Morales that night and audio clips from the radio show. So uh, uh, that's up there. But anyway, you know, Freddie, uh, God rest his soul. I mean, what an incredible man. The king of men. Is king what of I men. Call them, and that's what I named my newsletter, my bulletin. I was called the King of Men. Uh, I sent away for the. I sent away for that record, like everybody else. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got. I did. Too. I sent away for. Yeah. I was still in school, and I, I, I sent away for. Uh, I bite the songs and. <laughs> yes, US I bite mail the songs. And, and the song entitled "Pencil Nick Geek," which has to yeah. be heard to be believed, which was a regular on Doctor Demento's show. It was yes. Yeah, incredible guy, Freddie Blassie. But uh, we got an incredible show tonight, Bob, and uh, let's get right to it. This is a Pro Wrestling Spotlight, really covering September of 1991. Yeah, we'll start with episode 126 from December, or excuse me, September 8th, 1991. And the big news that week was John announcing that Ric Flair was now officially part of the WWF. Of course, this led to him soon becoming world champ and a series of matches with Hulk Hogan that for some reason failed to resonate with the ticket-buying public, which is something I think that floored every one of us. Isn't that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was the way they built it up. They didn't build it up. I mean, they just uh, they put it on a freaking house show. Yeah. Right? yeah. A house show. So I, I mean, I was... what's, what's the purpose of that? And it got us in a lot of trouble, as we'll hear. Uh, especially in uh, when we start covering the actual matches that took place. But, um, yeah, I was shocked. I thought they'd lead it up to a big pay-per-view. They'd build up the feud. The fact that Rick oh, Flair WrestleMania. Was, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That Flair came in as the world champion with the belt, with the belt, mm-hmm. and they blew it. They totally blew it. it. I don't know what the specific cause was, but it still makes me confused all these years later because – I don't know if it was because, as we noted in the past, past accomplishments by superstar wrestlers meant nothing when they entered the WWF. It meant nothing. Harley Race's record, Dory Funk's record, Terry Funk's record, none of it meant anything because they became characters at that point. Now, Ric Flair was character proof. He was his own, you know, he didn't need a character. He was Ric Flair. He was larger than life. But maybe it was the juxtaposition of the comic book Hulk Hogan against the athlete Ric Flair that failed to resonate with the type of audience that WWF had at that point. That's the only thing I can think of. And the fact that, like you say, they handled it really badly. Really badly. And that gets, that gets us in hot water. because, uh, And we'll talk about that, obviously, on next week's show. that We have, a, we have segments on, on what happened in those first few matches with Flair and Hogan out on the West Coast. And and uh, the cooperation with the WWF stopped dead cold after the Freddie Blassie appearance. And once we started talking about Flair Hogan and the finishes, because they were doing the finishes around the horn out there, uh, same one. Uh, and we reported on it and everyone was so disappointed. And then they gave us a call and was like, you know, this is you're ruining the business. This is what you do. And we're not going to cooperate with you any longer. So that was the end of that. Oh, cooperation with the WWF. Um, as an old yeah. wrestling magazine guy, I don't even know what that means. Right, right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, they were always kind of like, you know, they never really liked to fully cooperate with you regardless. No, when they started their own original edition of WWF magazine, um, we had covered them ringside for decades, and then mm-hmm. it just stopped cold. 
this is before I joined PWI, but still, um, it was hard. It was hard covering their matches. We had to kind of sneak in and, you know, <laughs> our photographers used to sit in the third tier at Madison Square Garden instead of down yeah. low. And we used to bring in 400 millimeter lenses in Subway sandwich bags <laughs> so we could hide them from the security who had their eyes out. And the security guard was trained to look for flash photography. They didn't. If you remember, there was a time when I think they banned all flash photography inside the arena for the fans. I believe. I do, I do remember that. Yeah. And we were part of that, and I still don't know how we got away with it all those times. But we were able to take. We had some skilled skilled lensmen, and we were able to uh, weather the storm until things calmed down. I guess around ninety four. Yeah, when they needed you, they'd call you up and say, "Why don't you guys come back?" And shoot. exactly, that's exactly what happened after a while. Around the time when they started the, what was it, the Hammerstein Ballroom early Raw editions? Yes. All yes. of a sudden, here comes the red carpet. I mean, they shunned us for five years, and then they rolled out the red carpet for it. I just don't understand. Ratings must have been down. You know, they needed well, they needed. They were. <laughs> it was a bad yeah. time. Yes, uh, Post-steroid yes. post and sex scandals and all of that. So, And it's kind of cool because we'll be getting to a lot of that stuff uh, here on the show and Future years, actually. Uh, but, uh, you know, today's uh, episode, September, uh, we had uh, just great guests, great clips. So let's uh, let's get. Yeah. About. Here comes Cactus Jack. At what I if if my memory serves and I'm an old whatever I am. And I, I, I really think that this period in Cactus's career was his intro to actual superstardom. WCW gave him yeah, at least say what you want about WCW, but they gave him a platform to show what he had and what he had was good. No more job guy, no more super characters, no more goofing around. Mm -hmm. Mick Foley is a hall of fame wrestler and was from the day he put on a pair of boots. And, and, and I believe this was the, this was the point where he started to cut his teeth in front of a large audience on pay-per-views and he had great matches against sting and Vader and go down the line. He was great. And now yeah. people are starting to realize it for real. Yeah. That program with Vader was just off the chart. I mean, oh, he just, off, the, well, the they incredible blew that. risks. The, the, yeah, they blew, but the, the they blew that, that too. Blew. But yeah. Yeah. But that the TV angle they ran of Vader slamming him on the, on the bare floor. That's what I was referring to. Yeah. Yeah. Un it's one of the one of the most jarring moments in professional wrestling it history. Was. It was perfect. Yeah. And then they screwed it up by making yeah. a comedy show out of it. And yep. I, I can't even believe they took a with Leslie Nielsen and I can't even describe how stupid it was. Yeah. But the original part of that angle was one of the best things of the decade on wrestling TV. And then of course he eventually loses his ear in a match against Vader in Germany. Mm -hmm. And uh, they didn't even take advantage of that tragedy. They yes. Blew it, so. But, you know, and here's something you're about to hear with these clips too, of, of Mick. First of all, he's a great guy. Everybody loves Mick Foley. Oh, yeah. And, but secondly, he could talk. You know, the best. when he wasn't the bang bang uh, Cactus Jack character, and the fact that everybody was so dead set on pushing monster muscle guys at that point. If he had chosen to become like kind of a, like a suave talker, kind of like Ric Flairish, he would have been good. I mean, yeah. he really would have been great taking his character and making it entirely different. He, he took really a lot. He, he took a lot of pride in his promos, and he worked on his promos, and he rehearsed his promos, and 
And one thing which uh, we always bring up here uh, on the show, I mean, from the past rendition of it to now, is that he really, uh, what he called, developed a lot of his muscle memory skills from his appearances on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. Because mm-hmm. he practiced some of the things that he would say and his character development. And he had carte blanche whenever he wanted to come on the show. If he called 10 minutes before I went on the air, hey, listen, I'm going to drive by. Is it Come on in. And it was just incredible to have him uh, so many times on the program. And uh, between him and Paul Lee, uh, those were the two most frequent guests uh, on yeah. the Wrestling Spotlight. But his promos and the way he just even answered the listeners uh, and the callers that called in for him. Oh, but, you're going to uh, hear that. You're going to hear yeah. that, too. You know, I, I, you know what I'm proud of? He, he had been struggling on the Indies for so long, and I yeah. am the first person responsible, and this, this is a documented fact, of putting his name on the cover of a wrestling magazine for the first time. It was really? PWI, and the top banner said, Cactus Jack Attack, explanation point. And this is when he was in the UWF with Herb Abrams. Very cool. And he was like, I talked to him on the phone. He said, you put my name on the cover. I said, yeah, man, you deserve it. <laughs> He was he was incredulous. He was like, "You put my name on the cover." I was like, "Your matches have been tremendous. How could I not push you in the office?" And I did. I pushed him in the office like crazy. Yeah. He was modest, I, him and Rob Van Dam are the two people I'm most proud of shoving into Stu Sachs's faces. We got to get him in the magazine. We got to get him in the magazine because I saw them when they were young, and you know Rob Van Dam was amazing from his first match on. Yeah. Cactus, I had seen in a, a series of independent cards, one of which I attended with you, mm-hmm. and. He, there was nobody like Cactus Jack. He was one of a kind. No, oh. between his matches with Sunny Beach, I mean, in 1990. That oh year, yeah, and then the Eddie Gilbert stuff in '91. That incredible series of matches in Philadelphia. Uh, he uh, he was just incredible to watch, and um, I mean, I have such fond memories of him. Um, I mean, I'm going to get to see him next week, which is kind of cool because he's coming oh, that- to Na- he's coming to Nashville. Wow, and, and he's got a um, he's got a, a stand up comedy uh, appearance here at Zany's, so uh, <laughs> we're gonna get we're gonna get together. I'm gonna try to do an interview with him for the show, and then of course I'm gonna invite him on. Uh, oh, you know, please, do, it, please for do. one of his future uh, uh, appearances on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight from 30 years ago, and see if he'd join us for uh, a little back and forth. I know he doesn't like to listen to some of his older uh, promos, especially back in these days. Uh, but, uh, you know, you might be able to coax him into something. Uh, well, I, I look forward to seeing him. Well, now that you mentioned promos, we want to get to a clip here. Let's, let's do it, man. Let's do it. Uh, this, this one here, <laughs> he, he, he did uh, cactus. had just had a great appearance against sting, uh, including a clash of the champions appearance, which was awesome. Our first clip is Mick Foley, who gives a caller named Billy a pretty good tongue lashing. So let's get to that right now. Um, well, Eddie Gilbert, nature is taking care of that on its own. <laughs> so Eddie Gilbert will lose the big hair versus hair match to Mother Nature. But I would like, I guess I'd like to see Medusa lose hers. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I kind of like that balding little guy from, uh, you know. The second question is, uh, who did Sting beat to win the U.S. title? I think he beat stunning Steve, Steve Austin. Austin. Yeah, that, that took place August 25th at the Atlanta Omni. All right, well, maybe we'll get to see you beat him, too. Yeah. That's well, thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for your call, Patrick. Brian from St. James, you're next. I have what's going on, John. How you doing? Yeah, I haven't talked to you in a long time. How's that? Well, Brian, you're a troublemaker, aren't you? No. 
Is there some guy from St. James who's a troublemaker? Yeah, there were a few of them. Okay, well, go ahead, Brian. Okay, first I have a question for Cactus. Okay. When I was watching uh, The Clash, yes. it reminds me a lot of the Survivor series with the egg. With the egg? Because, you know, when the, the chicken jumped out. I, not yeah. that I'm calling you a chicken, but... It reminded me because it was almost like a package. But that well, egg, but that egg sat, sat uh, outside the ring yeah. for about three months. Well, when I was uh, negotiating with the WCW, they did at one point want to call me Goblety Gooker Jack, <laughs> and I, I ixnated. But no, I don't think there was any similarity. I mean, I was out there for two minutes. The, the Gooker, he was out there for, uh, for, uh, for, for about two, three months, and there's a difference. When he came out, he... Uh, Damn. He did a couple of somersaults and a, and a tumbleweave, and Cactus Jack uh, showed the, the world stings liver. <laughs> so there's a difference. Uh, you know what? I, you know what I heard? I heard you know that uh, Sting, after the match, he too is emotional. They said that uh, Sting is what you know he had a lump in his throat, and I said to them, that's not emotion, it's his liver. <laughs> I have a second question. Go ahead, go ahead, Brian. Okay. Um, if, well, actually, it's for both of you. Um, if Cactus was offered a contract to WWF, you mean to tell me he wouldn't accept it? That's well, up to Cactus. I know. Well, at this point, I you know. I have another call. Hold on. Yeah, we're going to hold on. another call? My goodness, this guy better examine his priorities. Billy from Elmont, first time caller, you're next. Yeah. Um, first of all, I think that Cactus Jack is a great wrestler and that um, he, he might bring WCW back to where it was. But a lot of people are going to call him a sellout because he used to be very successful in independent cards, and he can really draw in a lot of people to an independent show that only might draw 100 or 120, 1,500, 2,500 people might come. Um, why did Cactus Jack decide to go for, like, the limelight when independents were, like, his trademark? All right, well, let me tell you something, Billy. What do you do for a living? I'm a student. You're a student. And what do you plan to do when you're not a student? Um, hopefully write for a wrestling magazine. Write for a wrestling magazine. Okay, so if you could write for a wrestling magazine, and then uh, by doing that, uh, you stop writing for your school paper, and all of a sudden, and, 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 and people start calling you a sellout because you're making a living, I mean, it's not right. Don't you understand that wrestling is a business? I don't think I was selling out anything when I was standing on that top, uh, that top turnbuckle preparing to, to, de to devastate Sting. Do you understand? I've been in this business for six years. You know what I have? Nothing! <laughs> I have nothing, you understand, except broken body and a broken, some broken dreams. Well, at least, you, well, no, no, I'm, I'm trying to, 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 to talk to your question, all right? Okay. Do you think for one second that if I'm crippled in the hospital that, that Billy from Elmont and Joe from, uh, from Philadelphia are going to pay my bills? They're not. Don't you think it's about time that I start making a living and, and having a real life? I mean, I wake up every day, and, uh, and, uh, and it's tougher and tougher to do, and you want me to sit there and stand up for wrestling? I think I'm standing up for wrestling. People said, well, why do you want to go into WCW? They're falling apart. Anyone can jump on a sailing ship, and it will continue to sail. Do you understand? It's that person that can rebuild a sinking ship. I think I'm doing a heck of a lot more for wrestling by being out there five, six times a week than I am by, by doing a, a couple of shows a week and going to some uh, distant shore where people have never even heard of me. I mean, I stand there and I see what the people think, Billy. People forget real quick. They forget Bob Backlund. Over time, they'll forget Hulk Hogan. I stand there and I got about 30 people screaming, Cactus Jack, Cactus Jack, and the other 600 people don't know who I am. Do you understand? Do you think, are you going to pay my bills when you get out of school? Is your wrestling magazine going to pay for my broken bones? I don't think so. All right, so, so as far as those people who think I'm selling out, I am prepared to work harder than I've ever worked before to do moves that you've never seen before because they've never been done before, okay? 
As far as selling out, there is no such thing as doing that, all right? Cactus Jack is not going to compromise his character. It's the first time that these people have given me a chance to talk. There's no one saying, Jack, stand in the background and make goofy faces, because that's not what I'm about anymore. Okay? Billy, let me ask you a question, okay? Yeah. Uh, if you had an opportunity, let's say once you graduate, uh, to write for Andrew Goldberger's Around the Ring magazine or Bill Apter's uh, Pro Wrestling Illustrated, what would you choose? Well, I, I would choose Pro Wrestling Illustrated, but um, I would like to say that at least Cactus Jack made a good decision by going to WCW instead of WWF. Well, even so, WWF, there are some wrestlers there. You mean to tell me Bret Hart and Kurt Hennig, they were selling out by having one of the matches of the year? But like the Red Rooster. It ruined his career. Some people do well there, but other people who are successful beforehand who go there become um, lower stars like Terry Keller. You see, I feel like it's up to me. It's up to me. If people were to say, yes, Cactus Jack, you're going to put on the gobbledygooker suit and you're going to be a big star, I'd say no. No, I'll wait my chance, but I've been out there 14 months. 14 months, and sure, I've had other offers, you know, to do things, and I didn't think the time was right. But they called up, and I said, will I have a manager? No managers. I do my own talking, and I decided to take it. It may have been a two-week deal, but it's not going to be, okay, Billy? Well, good luck, and I hope you win the U.S. title from Sting. Thanks Thank a lot, you. Billy. There you go. Billy got a little bit of a tongue lashing, but he, he was asking some interesting questions. You know, but, I, uh, I think he worded it poorly. I do, I do too. I, I don't think there was any malice aforethought. I think he didn't know how to pose the question. In other words, are you going to be, I think the question would have been better if he said, are you going to become homogenized now? Will you not be the same cactus Jack? Yeah. I think that would have been a more prescient question because I think that's really what he wanted to know. Are you still going to be who you are? And right. cactus pretty much told him I'm going to be who I am. And he was, and he uh, created, uh, you know, that, as you said, that time period in his life and in his career was kind of the breakthrough, real big breakthrough moment for him. It really was. And he, he grabbed the bull by the horns, and life was never the same after that. No. That was like his first hit single. <laughs> it was. You know, he, he, you know he, he, it was the, the first thing that brought people's attention to him, and it, they never took their eyes off him after that, I'll tell you that much. So we have some more clips here. Um, some, we have uh, some calls, and... Cactus is going to talk about a dream he had. You want to hmm. find out what that's about, don't you, John? I would like to hear that, yes. All right, let's go to that clip right now. Question, can you tell us what's going on with uh, Ultimate Warrior? He's now gone, right? Yes, uh, he was uh, the official line, uh, uh, the official press release from the World Wrestling Federation and PR director Steve Planamenta is that the Ultimate Warrior was suspended for a minimum of 90 days uh, for unprofessional conduct relating directly to the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, what that means uh, is... In my own personal observation of it and a number of insiders that I talk to uh, all the time is that the Ultimate Warrior has basically been fired from the WWF, and I believe it stems from uh, him pretty much pushing Vince McMahon against the wall by demanding a Hulk Hogan-like contract, a guaranteed contract for a year. Now, the WWF contracts guarantee the wrestlers uh, $2,250 only, and that's just for TV appearances. Uh, but the Warrior wanted a guaranteed uh, contract. I believe the figure banted around was $1 million, and uh, Vince fired him uh, the, directly after SummerSlam. Appreciate it. Keep up the good work, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye, Steve. Okay, Mike from St. James, you're next. Yeah, how you doing, John? How you doing, Cactus? Okay. Good, Mike. Yeah, uh, Cactus, I want to get right to it. Obviously, everybody wants to know, who sent you out to attack Sting? 
Well, I think I, I know who sent me out to texting. You might have a couple of ideas, but I think that it would really be, I mean, I'm not going to come on here and, and tell you that your parents deliver your presents for Christmas because I don't know. I know who it was. Uh, Rip Rogers. <laughs> Rip Rogers did it. <laughs> no, I, I'm going to say that, I, you know, it wouldn't be right for me to tell you who was sending me out there. Um, I would, I mean, I'd. I don't know if this is the right time or not, but I would like to say that since this thing has happened, you know, I've had a lot of, you know, I've been very excited, had a lot of, you know, a lot of sleepless nights, a lot of uh, tossing and turning because I'm very, you know, emotional about this whole thing, and I'm glad to be back on TV, glad to be back in a spot where I think I can do some good, and it's, you know, uh, it's, it's strange. I just wanted to share a strange dream that I had with you. I dreamt that I woke up in the middle of a crowded room, not too crowded, three people in the room, Momar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, and Sting. And Cactus Jack had a gun with only two bullets in it. What would you do? What would you do? I don't know, Cactus. I shot Sting twice! <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for your call. Thanks for your call, Mike. We appreciate it. Let's go to Tim from Eatontown, New Jersey. Hey, John. How you doing? This is Tim. Tim John? Yeah. Tim, how you doing? Hey, Tim. He's uh, a, yeah, that's right. Uh, Tim. Here is the guy who we could owe credit to for printing up uh, the last and laying out the Cactus Jack Bulletin. Did a great job with it, Tim. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tim. Um, that uh, lump you said that was in Sting's throat? Yes. I think that was him uh, thanking you for reviving his career. <laughs> <laughs> Because he was going nowhere fast with that uh, Nikita Koloff. I think it added a new life. To it. I think he's got a little bit new enthusiasm to uh, the last few times I've seen Sting even on television. He has a little bit more of a of a life in him. Yeah. You know, it's it's. I was thinking that myself. I know that at times when Bruiser Brody came to Japan, he switched from uh, all Japan to New Japan. It added new life to Antonio Inoki, even though Bruce Brody. I mean, that's not his intention to add new life to anybody. His intention was to beat the tar out of him. But uh, the byproducts that added new life to him. I think, yes, that I see a sparkle in Sting's eyes and that he's a different man now than when we first tied up a week ago. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's like, it seems that, you know, after all this uh, discussion the past, I don't know, month or so about you know, WCW's going down the uh, toilet, per se, that, it, you know, things, even the TV show yesterday, yeah. seemed, it seems to be getting a lot better. I think so, too. I'm looking at it from perspective. Sure, there's a couple things, you know, that I, you know, that are... I don't know if they're wrong with the company, but if that I was if I was in charge, it wouldn't be there. But I see a lot more positives, and still some of the greatest wrestlers uh, around. I mean, like I said before, Arn Anderson and and uh, Larry Zbyszko winning the titles has to be seen as a positive. Um, I think that my coming into the group is is a positive. Even guys, people are going to boo-hoo Bill Kazmaier because he's not a wrestler, but I know that guys like him are, are at least trying hard. You'll be seen as as the major league of wrestling. Yeah, well, it's just starting to get you know exciting, you know, a little bit more exciting to watch, you know, because of you, but because you know just you know where it seems to be going, you know, when Ron Simmons dove over the table uh, sure, at the contract yeah, yeah. signing, it was like, you know, you finally got you know excited about you know at least Lex Luger, which you know him being the champ isn't the greatest thing in the world, but at least you're somewhat interested in you know the feud that's developing. Oh, I think uh, personally that the WCW hit rock bottom when Flair was fired, and I think it took a good month, month and a half for them to try to regroup, yeah. uh, and then bringing in a uh, little fresh talent, and then certainly someone that could, in my opinion, help uh, the entire organization, a guy like Cactus Jack, I think that's certainly going to help. They just got to remain focused on uh, who their audience is and who they're trying to attract. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and they could uh, pull themselves out of the dust, and uh, I think they're starting to do that. Hopefully, it'll continue. Yeah. All right, guys. Okay, Tim. Hopefully, we'll see you on the bus. Yeah. If, if not, I'll you know I'll be talking to you soon. Okay, so long, care. Tim. Thank right, you. Bye. Well, there you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Uh, great calls, and um, you know his his career was taking off, and uh, it was. Um, it was always a pleasure to have him there and you always learned something new and you learned a little bit more into uh, what's uh, inside the mind of uh, Mr. Mick Foley. There's a lot in that mind. <laughs> oh, sure. There, there sure is. There's never been anybody quite like him and there never will be anybody like him again. Um, willing to take risks both verbally and physically for his entire career. I, I, I remember just getting to know him when he was young and all he wanted to do all he cared about was putting on the best match he could. Didn't matter what the format was of the company he was working for. He wanted to do the best match he could possibly take part in. And you got to love it. Yeah. And I, I saw him in uh, the high school gyms and yeah. I saw him on the pay per view, uh, pay per view platforms. Uh, and uh, he put out a thousand percent, no matter how many people were there. Yeah. Now, this next clip. This is only about a minute in length, but he talks about having a taste of Japan, which I found interesting because he had a lot more than a taste of of Japan a couple of years later, as you recall. Oh, yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, Those series of matches he had with Funk in Japan. Oh, my gosh. I I find them riveting even today. You know, I just saw one of those matches for the first time about six months ago. And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) They were really over the top, those bouts. Very emotional. Yep. But let's give let's give you a little mini clip here about Cactus talking about Japan. I, I loved it there, and I learned a lot. Uh, I think if anyone saw my match with Terry Gordy in uh, the Glo- in Global, uh-huh. which was one of the highlights of my career, if I'd had that match maybe uh, six months ago, I wouldn't even be able to compete because I didn't know the style. But now I know that style, and I try to put it, as much of it into my matches in WCW as I can. I, I liked it, and uh, some sometime I look forward to going back there. Sometime I look forward to going back there. I think he went back a couple of times. Oh, I think he went back there more than a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he really, he really, you know, uh, a quick um, story. And it was against uh, Funk. It was, it was one of those matches where he was set on fire in Japan. Mm. And, um, and, and when he got home, uh, his wife, Colette, asked, I smell something burning. And it was actually he goes well. That's that. That's me. <laughs> he would he burned up over that. I never forget that because uh, one of the things that I did as far as uh, just being a friend, he was looking to move into a new place with his wife, and um, uh, in West Babylon where I lived, uh, very dear friends of ours um, had a house, and they were looking to rent the main floor, and. Uh, I told Mick about it and introduced him to uh, the folks there in West Babylon, uh, uh, Vivian, who's still a dear friend today, and her, her, her mother and father who own this nice house. And and I forget, I, I showed up when he was there to meet them to take a look at the place. And he wore a sports jacket and a tie, and he pulled his hair back into kind of a, a ponytail to, to, to be presentable to them and he was a gentleman of course uh and he got the apartment and he wound up staying there for a couple of years two or three years actually before he bought his first house 
he even used that apartment in a in a in a very interesting promo when he was in ECW, talking about the sweat box he had to live in on Long Island when his kids <laughs> were like wanting to get a, a swimming pool or whatever. And and so anyway, I mean that's just kind of a little side note story, but um, uh, he was just such an uh, still is such an interesting guy and great guy, great friend and uh, just a legend. Well, I, let's go to the last clip with him. This one's about five okay. minutes long, and it's he talks about his now legendary barbed wire match with Eddie Gilbert, mm-hmm. and there's some callers who are really funny in this clip. So I can't wait to play this one because this is one of the ones I enjoyed the most when I was listening to these shows, and uh, let's go through it right now. Do I have time to go into the story behind the barbed wire? Uh, briefly, yeah. Well, I know I have a, there's a long story behind it, uh, Fredo. So I wouldn't have, I would not have signed for the barbed wire if I didn't think there were distinct advantages to doing it. Uh, being cut by the wire, yes, on one hand it's a terrible thing. On the other hand, it makes you feel good afterwards. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's it's a good kind of pain. So as far as cutting Eddie Gilbert, yeah, I enjoyed that too. I would not, uh, I would not suggest that if you have a a, uh, a friend in school that you would like to get even with, that you could settle it inside barbed wire. But it's only it's only the second time I've had it in uh in three in uh, in in my career. Unfortunately. I was at a family funeral. I mean, it's sad to say, and one of my little cousins was running around with the pictures of that and proudly displaying it <laughs> to all the Cactus Jack relatives. I was making a mad dash trying to hide the damn thing. <laughs> he was proud of it. He loved his little his big cousin uh, Jack wow. then. Wow. Maybe he'll get a Cactus Jack doll soon. <laughs> okay, thanks for your call. Fritos from New Jersey. Let's go to Cactus Joel from Brooklyn. Yeah, hi, Cactus. How you doing? Cactus, what are you doing? Nothing much. <laughs> Let me tell you, I just have one question. Yeah. I'm surprised Sting could hip toss you, because you really don't have a hip left, do you? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's all I was wondering. No, that's Cactus, a, you're doing great. Uh, thank you. That was a good one. Bye-bye. Thanks. Dave from Forest Hills, you're next. Hey, Cactus, why are you wasting your time with Sting? Why don't you go straight for Lex Luger? I think it would be a much better rivalry, and I think you can beat him for the world title. Uh, I don't know. At this point, I think... Uh, I think well, that's that's what I was soon to do with with his uh, wrestle Sting. I would like to wrestle Lex Luger. The problem is Lex Luger's turned bad to good to bad to good. That I think it would leave my career kind of in limbo. Right now, I want people to know that by attacking Sting, you know, I'm sending a little message out, and that that that's Cactus Jack is an angry, dirty, scummy, mean, belligerent person, and that those are his good points. Do you understand? <laughs> Somewhere down the line, yeah, I want people to be able to look at me and respect what I do, even admire it. So maybe you're down the road when I do fight Alex Luger let them make up their own mind as to who's the good guy and who's the bad guy I just want to give them the best match that I can and right now I think I have the best matches with Sting okay thanks for your call let's go quickly to Steve from Massapequa yeah how you doing Jack hi uh, is there anybody else in WCW you want to take on after Sting? Uh, you know what? I looked at the list. There's some people I want. Nothing, no personal vendettas except for Sting, but uh, the chance to have some great matches, maybe with Bobby Eaton, maybe even Dustin Rhodes, who I think uh, is is a great wrestler. Uh, maybe there's some other people there that, uh, you know, off the top of my head that I can't think of, but there's a lot of quality wrestlers. Arn Anderson somewhere down the line, Lex Luger, Ron Simmons, Barry Windham. There's chances for me to, I think, put my career really up there uh, with some quality opponents. Okay, thanks for your call. Pete from Eatontown, New Jersey, quickly. Yes, Cactus. Yes. I uh, want to compliment you on being a great wrestler. Thank also you. I'd like to compliment you on having one of the great wrestling voices on radio. Fantastic, <laughs> especially those shows I've heard from the past when you were railing on Sunny Beach. Well, you know, at this <laughs> time, I, I feel good. You know, I, I mean, uh, 
uh, times before I've come out here angry, I've come on more mellow, but I just want to, I just want the people to have a chance. It's like I said, I've been on here a lot of times and most of the time I've been on has been in the past year when I haven't had TV coverage. All right. And I had personal issues, but this time it seems like people have questions to ask me and I'm not mad right now. The only thing, I mean, there's only one question I really have for Sting and that is, I don't know if John knows or not, but people, they talk about my missing teeth and I say, no, I'm only missing one tooth because I have the other one on an earring that I hang. And so I always know it's there which brings up the point that sure cactus jack can hang his tooth on his ear but where is sting going to hang his liver <laughs> <laughs> thank you pete appreciate your call we got to wrap it up here uh cactus we really appreciate it. we can't take any more calls sorry we uh, really uh have to mike, wrap it up. mike uh, from west babylon you call back later uh i'll be on the show again uh sometime i am determined to be to be the uh the ed mcmahon of this of this television program the ed mcmahon Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, really interesting in that segment, there was a caller that called in and called himself Cactus Joel. Cactus Joel. <laughs> you know who you know who that is, right? That uh, must be Gertner. Joel Gertner, the quintessential stud muffin from ECW. Yes. He used it had to, call to be each and every week as Joel from Brooklyn. And uh, so today he was uh, Cactus Joel. He was Cactus Joel. Yeah, you know what? He was a pretty bright guy too, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. I'm telling you. Yes, yes, he, uh, yes, very innovative, and uh, he was just a kid. I never, I'm, you know, I never forget going on my bus trips and being at my conventions, and just a young guy who had I had no idea that would end up in the middle of ECW and cool. doing those things and developing a character that's still remembered and revered today. I tell you, some of those fans that went on those trips were really memorable. Some oh, in a good sure. way. Some in a bad way, but they were memorable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they certainly were. But uh, great segment with Cactus Jack. Always uh, always an entertaining segment on Pro Wrestling Spotlight. The best, B-E-S-T, the GOAT, greatest of all time. Uh, you want to you hear Freddie Blassie, John? Well, I guess that's our next segment. Um, we are going to uh, look back at that appearance that Fred Blassie made. I believe it was September 15th. 1991 and i was uh so incredibly happy the backstory once again is that mcmahon uh vince mcmahon jr invited me george napolitano uh well george didn't go but uh dave Meltzer, wade keller into the office at titan towers to uh start this new era of cooperation and i asked for freddie blassie and i was able to get him uh, on the show his only appearance and to me one of the most memorable historic appearances by anyone ever on the show well i feel the same way let us hear the dulcet tones of the one and only classy freddie blassie freddie you with us i certainly am john and it's a real pleasure hearing your commentating there well uh it's been you no know, you're saying since 1972 i mean you were a very easy fellow to work with anytime you needed anything and i was able to, to help you I was more than glad to do it because you were doing an A number one job. Well, it was just uh, something that I decided to do uh, uh, following your career and, and witnessing how you come, come back many, many times after injury after injury, setback after setback, nothing ever stopped uh, the great Fred Blassie. And just how the fans reacted to you, I said, this guy is just, uh, he's the best I've ever seen. And uh, that's why, as a youngster, I decided to start the fan club for you. And uh, it really uh, got me into the wrestling business. Uh, I took a hiatus for a while, but uh, I have to say publicly that without uh, uh, starting the Fred Blassie Fan Club, uh, 
the foundation wouldn't have been laid for me to get into this business. And uh, I want to thank you publicly for that first and foremost. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time doing that. And I also want to say hello to your mother, dad, and your sister. I mean, I haven't had a chance to do that for many years. Yes, and of course they all still remember you, and uh, I remember those days when I was locked up in my room uh, typing up the Fred Blassie Fan Club Bulletin, King of Men, many, many times, and uh, we have an exciting uh, couple hours here with, uh, uh, with the program Pro Wrestling Spotlight, and we're going to open up the phone lines later on, but uh, first and foremost, we're going to get into a little bit of your career, and uh, uh, I'm going to start it off with Donnie. Uh, Don Liable is another reporter who goes back uh, uh, to the old days, so to speak, <laughs> and talking about the 1970s, and Don, why don't you take it away right now? And John, just a more, I would consider this a personal comment, and I hope everybody uh, gets a, an idea out of this of what Freddie Blassie was like. I'll tell you, uh, his gravelly voice alone scared the heck out of me growing up as a wrestling mm -hmm. fan in the early 1970s. Blassie did more than just talk. He backed up in the ring more often than not by biting the forehead of his opponents with tough action. Fred was a three-time holder of the World Wrestling Alliance heavyweight title, and in 1961, after stripping the belt from Edouard Carpentier, the WWA merged with the National Wrestling Alliance and retired the belt Blassie held. But in 1964, a scare hit the mat world, as it was said Blassie would never wrestle again due to a serious kidney injury. Not ready to call it a career, battling back, on August 12, 1967, Fred made a triumphant return to the ring by defeating a young Nicky Bockwinkle in 15 seconds. That's how he did everything in arenas, in grand style. The Pacific Coast, Americas, and California Brass Knuckle titles are among the many collectives who are a wrestling career that has spanned in seven different decades for Freddie Blassie. The reverse spinning neck breaker was one of his more frequent holds employed to outsmart his opponents, and the list of regulars who came gunning for Blassie reads as an all-time who's who in wrestling. Feuds with John Tolis, the Sensational Destroyer, Ricky Dosan, and Giant Baba only scratched the surface of who Fred drew sellout crowds with. Since in the World Wrestling Federation seemed to have what made him a household name for good with wrestling fans, after dueling with then-champions Bruno Sammartino in the 60s and Pedro Morales in the 70s, Fred took up managing. His first protege was Nikolai Volkov, and others to follow in the stable were, among others, Victor Rivera and High Chief Peter Maivia. Whether being patched up in the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles by Dr. Bernard Schwartz, being introduced by ring announcer Jimmy Lennon, or having his picture taken by the great Gene Gordon, classy Freddie Blassie did what was asked of him in the most professional manner all the time. John? Well, that's uh, certainly a great tribute, and uh, Fred, that covers a little bit of your career well, anyhow. Yeah, I'm telling you, <laughs> I enjoyed listening to that, even, it was, even though it was all about myself. Yes, I had 27 major operations, and uh, the priest, they had a call two different times. They said it was all she wrote, but uh, I refused to give in. And I've been cut and stabbed 21 different dimes by spectators. And I had 16 knee operations. I have two total knee replacements. I have a total hip replacement. I lost my right kidney. Left kidney has been operated on. Seventh to the 11th thoracic vertebrae are fused together. I had three cracked vertebrae in my neck, which means my neck is broken. Both elbows, I can't straighten the arms out. And outside of that, I didn't get hurt too bad. <laughs> he didn't get hurt too bad. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that was, uh, he had hepatitis, uh, which kept him out for a while too. I mean, he just kept bouncing back and, and, uh, what a remarkable, resilient career that this guy had. Oh my Great. gosh. Uh, 
I, I read other things. He had some skin problems, and he. I think a famous quote was, ah, I go to see the doctor, and he just tell me to stay out of the sun. They hack, hack a piece of me off and tell me to get out of the sun. He was so, he was a yeah. sun worshiper. I mean, he, he was. He loved yeah. laying out there in California, and and uh, uh, and he just loved being out there and getting tan. I mean, he used to work on his tan all the time, and and then you know the compliment that that white mane of hair and yeah. uh, you know those big blue eyes that he had. I mean, uh, he was quite striking as an individual. I mean, he had that it factor and. He did a number of television appearances, too. I mean, he, he used to be on the Regis Philbin show. He broke Regis's finger once uh, on TV. I mean, he was on Mary Tyler Moore, which was a famous show years ago. And uh, so he, he had a he had a very distinguished and a very, very memorable uh, life in wrestling. I, re I remember that appearance. I think that was actually the Dick Van Dyke show. It and was. It was Mary Tyler Moore. Uh, yes. Right. right. Right, it was Dick but Van Dyke. At the, yeah. at the, he's on the very end of the episode, and he picks up Dick Van Dyke and does the twist, yeah, holding him over his shoulders. <laughs> and it's yeah. it's as funny as it sounds. And he was as scary back then. He was a heel, and at one point he turns around and goes ah to the crowd. The crowd backs up about fourteen feet because yep. he was he had that voice had announced that as the world wrestling champion. I used yeah. to love the way you said champion. Yes, champion. Yeah, champion. Yes, right. I, yes. I love that. I really yeah, he uh, <laughs> he was one of a kind, and of course, even that Dick Van Dyke episode. I think you could find it on YouTube somewhere. And oh yeah, and just, and just to remind everybody that that entire uh, two-hour show with Freddie Blassie in its entirety is up there for patrons, and uh, just go to Patreon.com/slash John Arezzi. But we do have a couple more clips of Freddie. Yeah, he his he's going to talk about this is a short one. And these are going to be short from this point on. He talks about California versus the East Coast, and comments about the Tolos feud, which nobody will ever forget. Even the photos of that feud were amazing. Yeah, probably the most memorable feud in wrestling history as far because that was a feud. That oh was capital F feud. Yeah. And the photography, I mean, by a guy named Theo Eret. Theo Eret, yes. He was what a what a what a photographer. I mean, and this guy. I mean, there's a. Do you ever see uh, Theo's book that was out? No, I heard about. It. I have not. Oh seen my it. goodness! It's called Exquisite Mayhem, and it's a photo book. It's a thick, thick book, wonderfully put together, of all of the historic photographs that Theo took. And uh, you know, it's kind of the only thing that's really interesting about it that may not be. I don't know. How can I put it? I mean, because he used to be the photographer that shot all the apartment style women's wrestling for mm -hmm. uh, for for those magazines, including uh, Sports Review. Well, uh, yeah. So, so, I mean, Before the whole book, the whole book is filled like you see a page of the Sheik, you know, against Blassie in a cage. And on the next page, there's uh, apartment wrestling. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the way they put the book together was interesting, but it, it's an amazing book. It, it captures that feud with Blassie and Tola so well and, and with all those historic photographs, especially when even when Blassie was blinded by the Monsell powder uh, at ringside yeah. in Los Angeles, which led to the Los Angeles Coliseum uh, doing, uh, doing that big show in August of 71, where uh, Tolis and Blassie were in that main event. Uh, to blow off Record box time. office, absolute yes. record box office. I yeah. mean, the hottest ticket in town for sure. One it of the was. great angles of all time. At that time, nothing. The, the idea of what Tolas did 
sneaking onto an interview and just blast. I think he was receiving a, a wrestler of the year trophy. If I'm he not was. mistaken, he was. And Tolos comes out of nowhere, cacking maniacally and throws this powder in his eyes. And the aftermath was blast. You scream in my eyes, my eyes. And yeah. the fans went bananas. Yeah. And rightfully so. It was and amazing. That, and that solidified him as uh, the number one baby face out there at the time. Mm -hmm. That's all it took. So let's let's get to this clip now and hear what he had to say about that era. Fans down in San Diego need to see the real king. Uh -huh. And I'm going to annihilate that pencil neck geek down there Friday night in San Diego. Like I said before, that's my favorite stamping ground because that's where I drive the fellas underneath the mat. Let me tell you something. You first, you've got to get over a fella called Ricky Dodd. Don't tell me about tonight. I said about Friday night in San Diego. You fans down in San Diego have got a great treat in store for you because you're going to see me annihilate that pencil neck geek. Billy Boy, get down there, and I'll prove once and for all who's the king of kings if you live through tonight. Don't talk about tonight, you pencil neck geek. I'm not worrying about I'm worrying about that. That's the least of my worries. You should be worried. Okay, we're back uh, with the last half hour of Pro Wrestling Spotlight and. Uh, uh, we've certainly had an enjoyable show, uh, and we're going to continue on with it right now. Freddie, you there? Yes, sir. Okay, we'll get back on the lines in just a second, but I want to talk to you a little bit about California. Uh, you were the top villain here in the East Coast, and at the same time, you were the fair-haired boy on the West Coast. How did that make you feel, traveling coast to coast, and one end of the country you will love, the other end of the country they were throwing bricks at you? Well, I, I use the same uh, style of wrestling at uh, at both places. Yeah, you certainly did, and uh, you were instrumental out in the West Coast with uh, just in California. Yeah, they uh, out there they they figured well nobody could beat me, so they might as well get on Blassie's side. Right, that's right. They uh, they certainly uh, you know as much as the intensity that they hated you here on the East Coast, they loved you on the West Coast with the same intensity. You uh, could do no wrong over there. And I guess when you still travel out to that part of the country, uh, the fans uh, still fondly remember you out there. Yeah, last year they presented me with a, a, a tr plaque and a trophy for 55 years of meritorious uh, 55 years of meritorious service uh, in professional wrestling. Uh huh. And uh, the, when I walked out to the ring, they all stood up as one at the sports arena. The sports arena was jam packed. I mean, they had couple thousand on the outside trying to get in and they all stood up and they all start yelling and screaming and whistling and everything and you talk about somebody getting goosebumps i almost froze to death wow it was a, a great feeling great feeling just hearing the guy incredible but yeah and that first uh, beginning of that segment was a, an interview that i actually had on cassette from uh, the 60s i believe believe it was and it led into uh, i played it for freddie and then he uh, went and started talking about california but uh, i have some so many of those uh, uh, blassy interviews from uh, from the 60s when he was just a crazy top heel out there I can't even imagine what those sound like because that was really when he was in his prime. And uh, yeah, oh, there was nothing like it. There's nothing like that whole Olympic oratorium vibe. You would know better than I would because you've actually been there. Am I right about that? Yeah, I mean, I was there for 74 at the, the Battle Royal with Andre the Giant. And uh, I mean, I always uh, wanted that was a dream, kind of a 
big dream of mine as a teenager to see a show at the Olympic. And I was able to do that. And then later on in 1995, I was actually able to promote a show there with the AAA, with Lucha Libre. So um, that was incredible. That was an incredible moment for me to actually promote a show at the Olympic. That's that's history. What's what's bigger history than the Olympic? That's amazing. Um, let's get back to the clips, I guess. Here's here's one of uh, a fan with some questions for both John and Fred. Do you think the chance that if Rick Flair ever beat Hogan, that they're going to allow him to uh, wrestle out of the thing, like out of the WWF and different organizations? I would doubt that seriously. Now, the question for Mr. Blassie, yes. um, since you manage, what do you think of the managers now? Well, they, they got uh, some of the finest. Heenan, Jimmy Hart, Fuji. Fuji, I always liked Fuji. I managed Fuji when he was co-holder of the World Tag Team title. Mm. He and Professor Tori Tanaka. Okay. Okay, thank you. Thanks for your call. Bye-bye. 955-1240 is the number to call here at the Pro Wrestling Spotlight. And uh, we're going to get on the lines with Scott from Massapequa on line number three. Scott? Hello, John. Yes. I have a question for you and Fred. Go right ahead. Um, one, I didn't. I missed the first hour because I was watching uh, WWF Wrestling Challenge. Uh-huh. Was there any scoops for WWF? Uh, scoops about what? About, like, Ultimate Warrior or anything? No. Uh, we have no information regarding that at all. All right. And a uh, question for Fred. Yes. Um, do you have any idea what, what's going to happen with Hogan and Warrior, you think? Like, uh, maybe they'll have a match again? The Hogan and Warrior? Yeah. All I know about the, the Warrior, he's suspended for no less than 90 days. Will he make it back for Survivor Series? Do, um, do I think about what? Okay. Will he make it back for Survivor Series? Well, I have no idea. What? I have no idea. I guess that's... I mean, uh, the, the, the guy, I, he's never been one of my favorites. Because, first place, I could never understand him. And uh, he talked, and I never knew what he was saying. Mm-hmm. All I knew is he had his mouth open. <laughs> Gasping for air, I guess. That's, a, that's kind of surprising, his comment about the Ultimate Warrior there, I thought. Yeah, well, he was on the outs. I mean, he had, you know, because he held McMahon up for the money and uh, wanted a million-dollar deal, he was out. And, you know, there was, he, Warrior wasn't really liked. And, 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 you know, listening back at this, uh, I wasn't really happy with that caller at the time because you hear you have Freddie Blassie, the all-time legend, a guy that um, basically was revered. I mean, his history. And then you have a guy coming on and asking, well, I missed the first hour of the show, uh, but I want to ask you a question about the Ultimate Warrior. You know, I thought, I mean, the, same, I thought the same thing. I was like, what? what? Jeez. It's like, it's like you're meeting the president and you're asking uh, – you know, um, where's the uh, where's the hot dog stand? You know, it, it just didn't equate to me. That happened. Know. That happened a lot. You know, when you have a guest on, and then someone would call a random question, and those are the those are the times that my blood started to boil a little bit when I was <laughs> on the air because I was like, "Come on, will you?" You know, and uh, but that was that, and we'll um, there'll be more situations like that upcoming in uh, future weeks. Uh, I did get angry in the studio sometimes, uh, but, uh, you know, oh, I tried to be you're polite. Go, you're, go, we, you're going to get angry later uh, in the show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little uh, tip off there. But I, I think we got one uh, more clip from Fred, Bob. Yeah. Um, it's, here's, here's a little short one here. And just a little bit. It's only about a minute long or so. And he's going to talk about his villainous ways. So let's find out what made Fred Blassie. Fred Blassie. That, that wasn't I. I had nothing to do with that. It was the 
the, the sports writers and the fans. Yeah, but they, they made you file your teeth? Yeah, yeah. My teeth were capped. And uh, I used to have to get them uh, recapped every year because due to the fact that I was filing them. <laughs> and uh, they, they were razor sharp. Yeah, I, I mean, uh, all I have to do is just put those teeth on your forehead and rip. No, they did. Like cutting you with a knife. Okay. Okay, that's it. Thank thanks, you. thanks for your call, Andre. 955-1240. F. Red, you did have the sharpest teeth in pro wrestling. And uh, that was uh, uh, just watching you gnaw on the head of some of your opponents. So it was just... Uh, uh, the fans used to just go crazy <laughs> over yeah. that stuff, yeah. Uh, let's go to a first-time caller, Dave from Brooklyn. Hi, guys. How you doing? All okay. right, Dave. Freddie, I think you're the best, and I always ask about you whenever I'm in a position to, like, see somebody who I think might know you. Well, thank you. And uh, I missed most of the show, unfortunately. I slept a little late, and you might have answered these two questions, but I'll ask them anyway. First of all, do you still have any involvement with the WWF at all in any advisory way? Yeah, he works in the front office. Okay, I, I thought so. I just missed most of the show. And also, what's your opinion of uh, Dusty Rhodes' booker in WCW? Well, <laughs> uh, Dusty Rhodes has never been one of my favorites. So anything Dusty Rhodes does, I'm against. Fred Blassie, what's more authentic, the Canarsie or Weehawken style of Mambo? <laughs> what, what, I know. where, how, where did they come up with this? Why would you know. ask Fred Blassie about Dusty Rhodes' booking whatever? Good gravy. I'm sorry. Now I'm getting angry. Hey, but, uh, <laughs> you know, there's always some in the bunch there. What do you Yes, there do? are. But, you know, the boy, was there ever a voice like Fred Blassie, too? And Alex, you know, Alex should know that he had that voice when he was 25. He always had that gravelly. He just had that growl in his voice. It was a natural thing with him. Yeah. Nobody like him. And if you the scariest wrestler to watch, the most ferocious over the top unbridled crazy man and, and the japanese were really scared of him the japanese mm -hmm. fans were really petrified scared of fred blassie uh john you probably have more recollection of that than i do but but well it's a known fact that they were they were they were petrified of him and then of course when he goes to the east coast and he's uh, working especially those series of matches against pedro morales i mean the uh the Puerto Rican fans that were attending and who just worship Morales. And when Blassie would come through that curtain and he would get in that ring, I mean, you had to be on guard because not only were things being thrown into the ring, but people used to surge the ring. They'd get close oh, to the yeah. ring and, and the security officers, I, I have footage of them dragging people out with billy clubs because they were trying to get get it blassy. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, the way the fans reacted to him was unlike anything I had ever seen, uh, the heat that he generated, and good heat and bad heat, because then on Los Angeles, they would kill for him. They loved him mm -hmm. so much. Well, he had the ability to cause legitimate riots. I mean, not yes. I'm using the word riot as the word riot because he caused – real riots. I mean, people storming the ring, like you said, and fights breaking out in the arenas and you name it. He, he yeah. could grab a, grab a crowd and manipulate it like very few wrestlers of any era. There's nobody Absolutely. like Fred Blassie, not even close. Absolutely. That's just my two cents. I, you know, I, well, I mean, it was a great segment. Um, and we can go on to show number 128 from September 22, 1991. 
And uh, this was a mixed bag of a show. It had all kinds of things going on. We had an announcement uh, of a title change that was very strange in the WWF days at that point. And uh, Dave Meltzer makes an appearance. And we also have Vinny LaFranco, who is going to offer uh, a rundown of a tri-state wrestling show promoted by Joel Goodhart. And as we all know, those shows were something else. Oh, they always were. And Vinny, of course, um, who is probably listening to this show right now because we're still in touch. And we're going to bring Vinny on the show as a guest. Uh, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to work that out and bring him on because he was with me in the studio as a producer. He started as a caller. And uh, and at one of my uh, personal appearances, he met a young lady at the time and he wound up marrying her, Andrea. Uh, and uh, they're still married, uh, and they keep in touch. Uh, so uh, definitely Vinny was a big part of it, and he helped out at the conventions, and he actually served as producer for Pro Wrestling Spotlight during this time. So, uh, yeah, Bob, so we'll go to that uh, rundown from Vinny about the Joel Goodhart show. Okay, let's cue that up right now. We, of course, had a uh, sold-out situation on our bus, and uh, – uh, it was a card that featured uh, many top-name performers. It featured the last independent uh, appearance by Cactus Jack, and uh, it featured a number of other things. And Vinny, you were there sitting ringside, and let's see if we can analyze uh, some of these matches that took place last night at the Goodhart Show. Okay, let's go to it, John. The first one was the Bloody Battle Royal, John, and uh, I'm not going to go over all the people that were in it, of course, and uh, I'm not going to go over the whole the whole scenario because in a battle royal, of course, there's a lot going on, and you got to keep yourself focused. But the final two men in there were Tony the Hitman Stetson and Mr. Sandman. And uh, Mr. Stetson brass knuckled the Sandman, and uh, the Sandman was bleeding and fell out of the ring. But the valet, Peaches, Mr. Sandman's valet (laughs) cleaned the blood off the Sandman before the referee saw the blood on the Sandman. And that's what what happened. I happened to see that. I don't know if everybody saw that because that was taking place on one side of the ring there. And then then Peaches took some ketchup and hit Stetson with some ketchup. Really? Yep, that's exactly what happened. And Stetson Stetson was full of ketchup, but that's what the referee saw. So the winner of the bout, Mr. Sandman. And that's how that one ended. And uh, the number two match was the the newly crowned champion, J.T. Smith versus D.C. Drake, accompanied by a crippled, in quotes crippled, Mr. Larry Winters. Johnny Hotbody was uh, along with him. Woman was along with him. Devious Don Allen was along with him. And J.T. Smith was uh, all by himself. And, of course, it didn't help because J.T. did capture that pinfall. That's right. Due to Larry Winters taking the crutch and attempting to hit D.C. with it, uh, missed. And uh, accidentally hit, uh, excuse me, did hit, did hit, attempted to hit Smith and actually hit D.C. Drake instead. And then Smith went on to pin D.C. That was it. Smith retained the title, but uh, one of the moves that I noticed there that really impressed me was uh, J.T. Smith standing up on the top uh, turnbuckle and leaping outside the ring onto uh, D.C. Did he did he hit the floor, John, or did he hit the? I couldn't see it. I saw him fly. It was like the really he uh, got. As far as height-wise, he must have been up there about 20 feet. That was an unbelievable leap. That really was. J.T. Smith has really come on. I'd say he's quite a performer. He's a classy guy outside the ring as well. Got a chance to speak to him a little bit last night. and uh, uh, He really is a talented performer. The third match was, uh, well, Tony Stetson came came into the ring and then demanded a match with Mr. Stanman, an immediate match from Joel Goodhart. 
which was granted by Joel. And Goodhart delivers. Yep, he delivered right away there. He said, okay, you want a match? You've got it. And uh, Stetson bloodied Mr. Sandman into a table, and then Mr. Sandman consequently bloodied Stetson with a chain, and uh, Tony Stetson leaped off the top rope with an elbow and pinned and spat at Mr. Sandman. Mm. That was match number three. Number four was Lunar and the Blackhearts versus Hot Body and D.C. Drake, again with Larry Winters on crutches in the background. And I don't know if you saw that match, John. Did you see yeah, that? Yeah, I did. That was, a, that was a good one. That was a good one. It was just so hard to follow all the action, John, in and around the ring. And uh, I think outside of Sensational Sherry, I think Luna has to be the best worker, best female worker around. Don't you agree? Yeah, she certainly was. And uh, just her ch- running around the ring, getting into the uh, the brawling with the uh, with the wrestlers is great. She is. Uh, She's a talented individual. She certainly is. I really was impressed by her. But she didn't look as ugly as she does on Sports Channel America, John. I don't know why. They didn't they did do her makeup. Well, I guess anybody ugly. working for her gets a little uglier. <laughs> I know it certainly didn't, didn't do very much for my looks when I was working for her. <laughs> and uh, D- in that match, D.C. Drake was nailed by Larry Winters with the crutch. Okay? So that happened again. And the Blackhearts got the win. And then D.C. was consequently beat up by Devious Don Allen, Larry Winters, Johnny Hotbody, and... D.C. Drake was saved by J.T. Smith. So the dog pound is broken up, and I guess uh, D.C. Drake and J.T. Smith will form an alliance perhaps, John? Yeah, I think D.C. now uh, uh, with the J.T. That was uh, that was surprising to see that. And that was the first uh, uh, reconciliation of the night in the night of reconciliations at the Joe Goodhart show. Okay, the number five match about John was, of course, the Japanese match of Owen Hart against uh, Ayazuka. And um, and that was his new uh, alliance with New Japan Pro Wrestling. That's right. He had Joe uh, Joe Diego. Is that his name? Joe Riego. Yes, Joe Diego for, from Japan. Uh, they're signing agreements to bring uh, more talent from New Japan into uh, the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance. Uh, the only thing about this match, and you have the results there, but uh, uh, the only unfortunate thing was that uh, for this match, right before the match started, they had the ring crew go out and tighten the ropes because in these Japan-style matches, they really need the ropes as tight as possible but unfortunately the second rope broke right at the start of the match and that hampered it yes and uh i don't think the people kind of really knew how to take this match on the japanese style of wrestling it was uh it was a situation where i think initially when the rope was broke i think it distracted it but once the rope was finally fixed uh the people got into the match and there was applause it was similar to the way they react to these type of matches over in japan that's right a lot of close finishes a lot of close calls a lot of twos and two and a halves and uh Finally, Owen Hart did reverse cradle and pin Ayazuka, and then a show of sportsmanship at the end. And uh, hopefully that's just the start of New Japan Wrestling with Joe Goodhart. Yes. And number six match was Kevin Sullivan with Fallen Angel Mm -hmm. versus Terry Funk. And uh, Kevin Sullivan came uh, came equipped with his hammer. Well, actually, (laughs) he pulled it from ringside from somebody there. Uh, actually, and another thing we saw was Terry Funk putting a leg lock on Fallen Angel. That yeah. was very interesting. I thought he was going for the figure four there, John. I think he was going for the uh, facsimile of the uh, spinning toe hold. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, he consequently was able to get woman's boot off, which he uh, used on uh, on uh, Mr. Sullivan. Yeah, that was a double DQ as far as... D- double DQ. It looks like Sullivan punched the ref, and uh, but they both got DQ'd. But then Terry Funk seemed to completely lose it, as, he's, as, as he usual. does, as <laughs> usual, throwing chairs all over the place. And uh, I don't know if you happen to catch it, John, when he took that Japanese reporter. Yeah, threw him into the ring threw railing. Threw him into the ring railing, boy. And, oh, gosh, that guy never knew it hit him. And I, could, I saw him later on. He was holding holding his shoulder. He, he really got it, boy. Yes. And uh, 
and Terry, Terry really was losing it there for a while. I wouldn't want to be near that in any outside of the ring when he's running around like that. And, uh, okay, so that again was, was a double DQ. And then the next match was Eddie Gilbert and Medusa Michelli versus Cactus Jack and Luna Vachon. Uh, before the match, Eddie Gilbert shamed Cactus Jack in front of all the fans, saying that he sold out. Yes, he did. I wish I had a copy of the of Eddie's speech last night, uh, but you can't uh, you can't blame Cactus for going over to an organization that he's going to be paid a lot of money for. He's paid his dues working up and down the circuit from uh, wrestling before 50 people to last night when he was introduced to the uh, uh, the Tri-State Wrestling Alliance crowd in Philadelphia. He got the biggest ovation of the night. Uh, and that is due to the respect that the fans have for him. And Eddie Gilbert saying that, uh, even though they may have reconciled at the end, is sort of, um, I think that was out of line. Yes. And then he also uh, perhaps was out of line by telling Jim Hurd to uh, kiss his kiss kiss uh, butt. Yes, I was letting you say that, John. I didn't want to say on the air exactly what was said. Okay, so let's just get into the match. And the girls grapple for about 15 minutes. And uh, Jack and... Uh, and uh, Eddie just stood outside the ring. They never officially got into the ring. They match. never officially got into the match. They went after each other after about 10, 15 minutes into the match outside the ring, which dragged into the, into the uh, audience. And then uh, uh, Medusa pinned Luna. And uh, They might as well have been wrestling for nobody inside the ring, Luna and, and Medusa finishing that matchup because everybody's eyes were on Cactus and Eddie That's outside right. the ring. Nobody's even paying attention to the girls. I wanted to see Cactus drop the elbow on Medusa, but unfortunately that didn't happen. No, not even close to it happening. And then uh, not even close to happening was uh, the match was supposed to be. Whoever got pinned, head was going to be shaved. And uh, she got a few snips off of Luna's Luna. head. Then the black The Blackhearts came in, and to make a long story short... Eddie and Cactus ended up fighting the Blackhearts. Yeah, and uh, they didn't shake hands at the end, but they certainly had some words for each other, and uh, uh, they did uh, show some respect for each other uh, towards the end when they had their closing comments to each other in front of the crowd uh, before Cactus uh, uh, faded back into the desert of the dressing room area and on now to Atlanta, Georgia. Let's go to just one more match, John, and we'll move on with the show here. Abdullah Butcher versus... The original Sheik. Ooh. And after taking about 45 minutes, unfortunately, to set up that ring cage, the match inside the ring lasted about five like minutes. Five minutes. <laughs> and uh, whoever was able to see what took place after that, after I presume it was a double DQ, uh, they both fell out of the ring. Um, I don't really know what the official ruling was on this match. I think it was, uh, I think it was Ab Abby. Ah, they both fell out of the cage at the same time. Right. Is that what happened? Yes, they both fell out of the same cage at the same time. And um, I don't know how much of it you saw, John, but... Uh, I saw the brawling in the back because I was up on the stage area, and that's when Abdullah absolutely went berserk up there, uh, hitting anyone in his path. And he took one ring attendant who was standing uh, by the dressing room area and lifted him up and threw him head first into the cement wall. That I saw. That was unbelievable. That and was Abdullah was just chasing everybody uh, all around the, uh, the, the that area, and it was a scary thing. And even, uh, uh, I never ran so fast uh, in all my life, I tell you that. Well, it takes, takes a lot to make me run. Cactus Jack got involved, Terry yeah. Funk got involved, Kevin. Uh, Kevin got involved, Kevin Sullivan got involved, and of course... Uh, Bam Bam Bigelow, who happened to just be there also, he got involved also. And it's tough to tell you everything that went on, because to tell you the truth, it was just hard to follow everything. Yeah, as we were talking about before uh, we went on the air, Joe Goodhart really needs to, uh, because his, uh, his cards feature a lot of uh, outside-the-ring brawling, he has got to set up a couple of large-screen videos uh, in areas where the fans who are sitting at the ringside seats can see 
what's happening in the all over the arena. I know it's going to be great for his video sales when the when the video comes out in six weeks. We'll be selling those videos here at the show. Uh, but uh, for the fans who pay, you know, thirty-five dollars for first row seats, twenty-five dollars for uh, additional ringside seats, uh, you got to have the fans be able to see the action. And that could be the only answer is to put up some large screen videos, uh, so at least they could follow what's going on. Just another meek and mild tri-state card, John. Every one of them was a classic. I mean, the names that he brought in, and I, 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 re I really thought Joel was going to be in business for a long period of time, but uh, he wasn't. But the shows that he promoted were always special, every well, single one of them. Well, here's the thing. They drew. I mean, at a time when most independent cards would, you know, two, 500 people, 600 people, high school gyms, he was booking small arenas in Philadelphia and filling them. With yes. rabid fans. I mean, it, it really was, you know, I don't want to speak out of turn here, but I consider Tri-State to be the precursor to what ECW eventually became. Oh, it was. They, they took a lot of that fan base and they just moved on to ECW when they formed Eastern Championship Wrestling, which I was associated with as their first TV announcer. That is correct, Bob. That is a tiny little piece of, and I thought I was terrible. <laughs> I did. That's why I didn't do it anymore. I, I did a few episodes of, of a small show on Channel 7, and uh, he was the co-host, and we had wrestler guests and phone calls from the fans, and I just didn't think I was any good. I, I, honestly, I just walked away from it because I thought he could do better, and eventually he found Joey Styles, and he did a lot better. Well, I was right. Know, Joey, Joey is uh, just Hall of Fame in my book. I mean, just some of the things. And he was coached so... Uh, so closely by Paul E too, uh, when ECW really took off. I mean, Joey was uh, he had uh, memorable uh, catchphrases. Yes, he did. Now, here's that. some trivia. Here's some trivia. I was there the day that Paul Heyman met Joey Styles. It was at the PWI offices, and uh, he he Paul had come up to talk to Aptor, I think, and they started to talk. Joey and and Paul did, and I could tell they hit it off from the very minute they started to talk. What did they Joey really do? What, did what Joey do for the magazine? Joey was an intern, I believe, at that point. Mm -hmm. Just an intern. Uh, he wrote some articles. I think we had him do a couple of heel uh, columns or something mm -hmm. like that, or, or something around that point. I was always so busy. I was managing editor at that point. I could. I, I remember when Paul was in. I could barely say hello to him. I was just swamped. Yeah. I you all, you're managing editor. Busy there. Yeah. Managing editor means you do everything. Yes. And you have to make decisions and work with the ad people and get the layouts done and, and the whole the whole kit and caboodle. So I remember, you know, talking to Paul for a while, but I had to get back to work. But I noticed we had a conference room that I could see through the glass from where I sat in our main office. They talked for about an hour and a half. I knew something was brewing. Yeah. Right then and there. I knew something was brewing. So that's, that's a nice little piece of history I stick in my back pocket. Well, people who are listening to this podcast right now are not – and I was not – familiar with that story so these are the types of things that people who listen to us every week are going to get to hear from your perspective i mean from being in that office for those years yeah i mean you would be surprised who would come up for a visit we had mil mascaras come up for a visit we had kerry von eric came and uh, he, he ate a steak with us over at the restaurant across the street we had um eddie and missy Came over for a visit. We would, you never know who was going to show up. Dominic Danucci, Mark Lewin showed up at one point. And wow. um, I've always been in, in awe of Mark Lewin because he was, he's the best juxtaposition between a baby face and a heel I have ever seen. It's not the same man, but he looked the same. 
you know, he he got better as he got older. I'm 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 a big Mark Lewin fan. I think he was one of a kind. Well, here's a rarity. John gets audibly angry on the air over a fan incident that took place at a local show. This is the first time I've ever heard this one. John is fit to be tied, if you can believe it. John, do you remember this at all? Well, I don't. I guess when you play it, I'll remember it. But uh, I did get angry occasionally. But uh, I look forward to listening to this one and see what ticked me off and what provoked me. All right, let's go to it right now. Headline, Mom Goes to Matt with School. It regarded the Plain Edge High School show on April 26th. Uh, you remember that uh, uh, Plain Edge High School show? I certainly remember it. Uh, that was when I received an elbow in my back from Cactus Jack. Uh, yeah, and uh, here is a situation where in one of the matches, the Conquistadors were wrestling the Power Twins, and there was an incident that took place where... A person, a youngster sitting in the front row, uh, threw a soda right in the face and all, all over the back of one of the wrestlers. And now they're suing the wrestlers, uh, saying that the wrestler injured this youngster. Now, tomorrow I'm going to call Newsday up, and I'm going to talk to the reporter there who did the story, Robin Topping. I'm also going to call the principal of the Plain Edge uh, High School, uh, because I have a complete video of what happened in that incident that I'm going to just release to them. And uh, these wrestlers in the school should not be sued over this incident, in my opinion, because the uh, it was very totally exaggerated. If you saw the article in the paper Friday, it was totally exaggerated, in my, my opinion, what happened. But, of course, the video will speak for itself when I release it to the, the public tomorrow because these wrestlers uh, who work these independent shows... A lot of people think that, hey, they're, they're living on easy street, they're making a lot of money, and it's just not so. Uh, a lot of these guys are living week to week and have two to three jobs and try to support a career in professional wrestling. And here you go, when you have, a, uh, you have someone sitting in a front row at ringside throwing, uh, taunting a wrestler and throwing soda all over him uh, to get some kicks from uh, maybe a couple of laughs from his friends. And then the mother of the kid turns around and sues everybody in sight because the kid was pushed in a seat. All the conquistador did was hold the kid, grab him, so security would escort him out of the building. They're just saying they had to take the kid to the hospital. It's a bunch of crap. And uh, I don't get angry very much, but uh, this thing really upset me this past Friday and uh, tomorrow I'm going to make some copies of this video and start circulating it because uh, these wrestlers are are hard workers and uh, all they're out there is trying to make a living and uh, now you know you get uh, lawsuits over something that was provoked by the person sitting in the front row at ringside so I went off on my tangent and that's it well John any yeah. recollection of this uh, yeah, pretty much. Uh, I do remember it because it was a big show there. That was the night I got the elbow by Cactus. And my sister was there with a video camera and she was filming uh, some of the matches. And we caught that incident on tape. Uh, and it was a kid at ringside who was uh, just acting up, throwing soda. And uh, one of the conquistadors came out to hold the kid for security and uh, pushed him down into the seat or whatever it was. And then he gets sued. So um, it was more, it, 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 you know, the kid was exploiting it. The mother got involved. They, they sued. And I, I do remember getting that videotape and making sure that people seen it. And I don't think that lawsuit uh, went forward. However, there was another incident that took place in the beginning of the show before the gates were even open, where Tony Atlas uh, 
through a security guard. There was something that went down that that led to another lawsuit on that show. So that was My a good show promoted I, by Sunny Beach. Yeah, Sunny Beach. John, I was at that show. Yes. I saw the Atlas moment. Yes. Yeah. And I'm trying to recall he got visibly angry with someone yeah. and it was pretty rough. It was. Um, I, you know, right now I would rather, you know, dot my eyes and cross my T's before I say any more about that. Cause I don't want to, you know, but I just remember feeling kind of uneasy the whole rest of the show. It was not a nice moment. And, uh, I think some people read things wrong at that point. And uh, so that was one heck of a heated show. It was, it was. And then it ended with that big angle. And uh, I didn't even, you know, I didn't even hear about the soda thing. I must've missed that somehow. I was there for the entire program. Yeah. It was a crazy night. And Rick Allen, Sunny Beach, who promoted it. I mean, uh, that, that uh, was a day today that he still talks about on the aftermath of everything that happened uh, during that uh, show. He, he promoted under the, under, under the UWF banner. He called it was like a UWF. He called it. Right. That's right. It was, that's right. You know, he was, he was a very creative man and uh, I wouldn't mind hearing from him again someday because he was, he was a terrific independent promoter. I thought. Yeah. He did a lot of shows, Staten Island, Brooklyn, Long Island. Uh, He had that great feud with Cactus Jack. Uh, and I, I talk to Rick all the time because he is going to be one of the people involved in the, uh, I believe, I mean, based on my last conversation, you know, he and I had been talking about Weekend of Champions uh, reunion a couple of years ago, and he's going to be involved in this uh, convention coming up in 2022. That's going to be a big deal next year. Uh, you know, the names that are being bandied about already is just really exciting. Yeah, we're, uh, you know, it's uh, nothing Nothing is easy. I mean, these days, uh, but you want to, you know, you're planning something on a a big scale like we are. uh, And uh, we are very excited when we can finally uh, announce the dates and the venue. And and right now we're just trying to line up uh, some of these headliners that are that are very costly. But um, I think it'll be worth it if we're able to secure who we're talking about. Anyway, sure. I mean, we got uh, a couple of more things to go over here today before we wrap it up. Uh, uh, I, uh, Bob, I'll just bring it back to you so we can talk about what's next here. Well, the, the, this is the last clip I have from show number 128, which, by the way, is from September 22nd, 1991. And WCW slash NWA made a blunder with their local New York television coverage. They were supposed to move to a different station and never moved. They just changed time slots, informing no one, including the wrestling media or anyone else for that matter. And I think, John, you discovered all this quite by accident, didn't you? Yeah, because I <laughs> I was just changing channels, tuning in, and then there it was. I mean, it was the blunder, and they said they were uh, changing uh, all of this, and then it was just just a time slot, but it was just one of the many blunders that WCW uh, did in the market. They really didn't exploit the New York market the way they could have. It was amazing to me. I, I thought they got off to a hot start in the market doing a couple of really good Meadowlands shows, including one where Ric Flair beat Sting for the title. And I thought they could grow on that. And they drew a semi-decent crowd. I think there was an ice storm, right? What that was going on. And yet there was a few thousand people in the building. Yeah. Um, I just don't understand how when you when there's 
you know, local syndicated TV is not cheap. You know, you just don't throw a show at somebody. It doesn't just appear by magic. You have to negotiate a deal and you pay for your airtime. And there's a whole mess of legalities that happen. How do you not announce exactly what was really going to happen? It freaks me out. It's just poor management. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to say that when I worked for WCW Magazine, it was a long time after that. And thankfully, I didn't have to deal with a lot of the people whose names were bandied about. I, wor I worked for Colin Bowman, who was the editor of the magazine at that point. But I did come in contact with a few things. And let's put it this way. People scratch their heads in every era of WCW. There's a lot of head scratching going on, wondering why things were the way they were. And that's, yeah. that's as nice as I can be about it, I guess. Well, there you go. Anyway, um, Dave Meltzer joins you here, and you guys discussed this blunder, and he's as, he's as flabbergasted as you are at this point. We've been trying to get Jim Ross on the phone uh, just due to the uh, astronomical blunder, but it just seems so typical of World Championship Wrestling yesterday here in New York. Uh, of course, their contract with WPIX uh, supposedly ran out on uh, September 14th, was going to be their last show on PIX. They say their goodbyes. And lo and behold, yesterday at 9 a.m. on WPIX was Pro Wrestling New York. Uh, I didn't see it myself because I assumed it would be on Channel 2 here in New York last night at 12.30. Last night at uh, Channel 2 here at 12.30 was Quincy. Uh, and yesterday, Pro Wrestling New York was on WPIX at 9 a.m. And, and they were just talking about the show as if it was a, a nighttime program. Um, now, what if you talk to... Do you know any reason why this happened? Because, yeah, I heard, this, I heard this story, too, and I... I have no idea. All I know is that uh, on our bus trip yesterday, some of the fans that were on the trip said, hey, you know, WCW was on today here in uh, New York on WPIX. Who knows why? They, who knows what happened? But they said it was a nighttime show. We'll see you next week. They didn't even mention PIX's name on the broadcast. And uh, last night, I set my VCR, and I came home from the bus trip. I just wanted to check to see if it was on, and lo and behold, the regularly scheduled uh, show that's been on the air each week, Quincy rerun, was on uh, CBS. And I don't know what happened. That's why I was trying to find out. I guess Ross would know something about it. Um, maybe. Yeah, I don't even know. So I, uh, I, I wouldn't have a clue on that. The, uh, did they, um, you know, say, like, welcome to Channel 2 and all that on the show? Uh, they, from what I understand, they didn't mention Channel 2. Oh, okay, okay. But, you know, after all this uh, hoopla, them changing the time, canceling a, a show at the Meadowlands, uh, in part because of it, uh, the time switch and the channel switch, and uh, no explanation, and, of course, it was just another blunder. They seem to just have a comedy of errors that just keeps continuing and continuing, and one of which is, of course, the now uh, dead NWA coming back to life. Yeah, that's right. Well, I don't know that the comedy as much as... Uh Bad business. Uh, you know, the, the only thing I could come up with on that one is that uh, um, that, that, that they're, they they have taken a lot of heat over the Ric Flair thing, um, and it's, uh, you know Flair is, is was I guess officially recognized by the NWA, whatever that means, as world champion, and I guess that they felt that that's a fight they could win, being that they weren't really fighting anyone. Well, I guess they were fighting Ric Flair. I don't know, but it was a you know. Um, you know, them and Ric Flair are still fighting, even though the fight's over. Ric Flair's in the WWF now, and and you know they, I mean, you know, the, I I know you've seen the uh, the PIX shows and um, you know some of the comments that have been made, and I I think that, th that this is now a done issue. I think it should be anyway. Yeah, it should be. And uh, yesterday uh, they did have a statement. Uh, I haven't seen the show, so I'm just saying from what I heard. 
that uh, they were supposed to read a message from Lex Luger to Ric Flair and Hulk Hogan, and of course they did, and it was uh, Luger challenging them any place, any time, anywhere, which we know it's not going to happen, but it's a situation that uh, it should be dead. You know, obviously Flair is with the WWF, and uh, they've been blasting Flair on these WCW shows, which uh, I don't think is very professional. Yeah, well... I don't think it's very professional either, but um, they, you know, you have to look at it from their perspective too. They have to create a, they do have to create a storyline that makes sense, and it's pretty hard to do that. You know, when when a guy leaves with, he's got your belt, he's in a rival promotion, he's never lost the title. Um, you know, they do have to create a storyline for the so-called, you know, wrestling fans that mm-hmm. that, you know, need that storyline that that don't know what the real story is. But I guess for those who have been following it pretty close, it is kind of an insult, you know. Just the way the whole thing was handled, anyway. We both know that they, yeah. if they had made the offers um, at the beginning that they made at the end to get Ric Flair back, they would have never had this problem to begin with because he probably would have stayed. Yeah. But the way they negotiated, you know, caused them to lose him, and then they blamed, you know, then you know to, to, to start taking it out on Flair because Flair made a move that, you know, he was almost forced into making. If you really, you know, for, um, unless he wanted to just, to, you know, have have no pride left and come back. And and when we see how the WWF's using him so far, it, it certainly rejuvenated his career. You know, 100. percent Well, I've seen, I saw yesterday WCW Super uh, WWF Superstar Show and uh, the uh, Paul Bearer segment uh, uh, with Flair on it. Uh, Flair is just uh, he's pumped up. You know, it's like it has brought new life. And his first appearance on primetime, he looked a little nervous and all, but uh, it was a classic Ric Flair interview. And yesterday's was as well, and I'm anxiously awaiting uh, next week's program when uh, Vince gets laid out. Well, I'll, t- I'll tell you the uh, <laughs> the, um, the the interview that aired last night uh, on yesterday's show was taped. You know that that show I believe that aired was taped in Rochester, but the interview was taped in um, Canada. You know, three weeks later. So what they did was when they did that taping, um, and this just shows how much um, extra work I guess they're willing to do to get this thing off the ground as fast as possible and make it work, is that they left a hole in the show waiting, you know, three weeks to fill the hole with Flair doing that interview. Because that interview was not done at the same time that the rest of that show was taped. Yeah. So they are putting in the extra effort for it, and next week uh, uh, scheduled to have that Piper, McMahon, and Flair uh, scene where uh, McMahon and Piper both go down. Right, right. So that's going to be exciting TV. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, not to keep putting down WCW, because I do want to give credit where credit is due here, uh, I've been enjoying their TV. As I've enjoyed what I've seen on TV with the uh, emergence of Cactus Jack and Abdullah the Butcher coming in. Uh, I'm enjoying their TV as well. Uh, uh, but it's just been a situation now for the first time, uh, personally, as a, as a fan and uh, as a reporter, I'm uh, taping wrestling again each week just to watch what's going on at WWF with Flair and watching Cactus on WCW. And uh, WCW has a long ways to go as far as to... Uh, bring the fans back, uh, but if they uh, bring in people with fresh blood like Cactus and uh, really start getting down to basics as far as what they did best years ago, it could be an interesting uh, couple mo- months coming up in the future. Uh, but, Davey, and I wanted to, uh, I'm going to open up the phone lines right now at uh, 516-955-1240. If you'd like to speak to Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer, area code 516-955-1240. Before we get to the lines, I just want to... For the listeners out there, you know more about this than I do, uh, regarding everything that's been happening in WCW and the name 
NWA. Now, there was a consortium of promoters that held the name. Uh, they had a meeting, and uh, did Turner purchase the name back from these promoters? What's going on with that? Okay, this is, this, this is as best as I know it, um, and I've talked to a lot of people. Apparently, there were seven votes, okay, of the national of the old National Wrestling Alliance. Um, a lot of people were under the assumption in 1988 that Ted Turner bought the National Wrestling Alliance, and he didn't. What happened was uh, he bought Jim Crockett Promotions, which had been operating as the National Wrestling Alliance, but there were actually, you know, the National Wrestling Alliance, as John and I will remember, you know, when we were younger, was, was a group of, at one point, probably, I don't know, maybe over 100 promoters, but it was worldwide, you know, Mexico, Japan. Yes. I mean, it was the, you know, I mean, the WWF was a, was a small Northeastern promotion, the AWA promoted in the Midwest, and the NWA was basically, you know, the rest of the world almost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, things, of course, have changed, and, and uh, Jim Crockett, um, in the late 80s, kind of, uh, you know, when, when Flair was champion, made the NWA um, champion only work for his group, so it sort of became Jim Crockett's promotion became known to most people as the NWA, and nothing else was the NWA. Um, but anyway, the, um, when, when Flair um, and, and WCW had their split, uh, the NWA voted 4-3 to three, uh, to keep Ric Flair as world champion. And so, so that's where things stood until about a week ago. And then what happened was uh, there was a, a, uh, one of the guys, Larry O'Day in Australia, uh, Australian promoter, uh, changed his allegiance from the, the other side to the WCW side. WCW had three votes, which I believe were, and I, I believe they were Jim Crockett, Gary Jester, and Jim Hurd. And with Larry O'Day, they, had, that, they gave them the, the four out of seven, which means that they elected Jim Hurd president of the NWA and, of course, immediately made Lex Luger the world champion. So I guess that's the real story of how it, how it all is happening. Okay, and how is it going to affect television, and how is it going to affect the name NWA being brought back into the public eye? They seem to have spent an awful lot of money to uh, dissolve the NWA and to uh, educate the fans to now we are WCW and not NWA. They just kind of faded out the NWA. Now they're going to be fading it back in? I don't think they're going to make a big deal about the, the about NWA. It's just that they can use it if they want to. Um, it certainly has more of a heritage and more of a history than WCW does, uh, but it just seems to be a tremendous uh, uh, blunder or just a, uh, a very confusing issue for uh, non-hardcore wrestling fans uh, where you have a name change in an organization and now a, a, the original name being mentioned again. It just seems well, very idiotic. Well, I, I, don't, it, I don't know if, if, that, if it's that confusing. It's just kind of a weird inconsistency, you know, that... For a long time, they were they were using both NWA and WCW and trying to phase in WCW, and then they stopped using the name NWA. And now, on occasion, I think they'll throw in the NWA name again. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's still I, I don't know that it's really a big deal in, in wrestling. But it's a it's I guess to a hardcore fan, it's it's kind of inconsistent when you know they spent all that time trying to get rid of the name, and now they're you know trying to phase it back in. I don't know what the name the name doesn't really mean anything at this point, though. Wow. So now let's go from the ridiculous to the sublime with an amazing interview with one of the most unique individuals ever in pro wrestling, Jesse, the body Ventura, who I was fortunate enough to interview for PWI at one point and also got to know him backstage a couple of times at shows for WCW, uh, 
around the Halloween Havoc point when Bruno was the referee of that uh, cage match with Muda and Sting and all those other people. Um, what a guy he is. I've always admired him from afar. I think he's pretty doggone close to a genius, really, seriously. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I, I remember even getting Jesse to appear on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight, and this was his first appearance ever, and it was, for me, it was a thrill because of how great uh, Jesse was on the mic and everything he had done, and and uh, he did a handful of shows with us over the years, and this was the first one, a big one. Uh, this is uh, uh, this is the time that he was uh, contemplating a, a run uh, for governor, right? And, yeah. And so, and this this was really historic for the show to have Jesse on, and I'm happy that uh, we'll be able to review that. Well, he was a mayor at the time of this clip, I believe. He was the mayor of Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. Right, right. That's right. And, and he, what a talker he was. I mean, I can yes. see why he was so great as a color commentator because, you know, he wasn't acting. That was Jesse Ventura. I mean, he had a gift of gab, unlike few people, and, and a real intelligence and wit about him. He's indescribable. He really is a tremendous, tremendous, I, yes. I don't know what to call him, iconoclast maybe? Very, you know, very, because, very much you know, so. You know, some people say, well, he looks a little bit like, you know, superstar Billy Graham, but he, he didn't act like superstar Billy Graham at all. Jesse Ventura was his own man. And, you know, who else would sh show up on a wrestling show with a Plato's Retreat T-shirt? <laughs> and, and if you don't and if you don't know what Plato's Retreat is, I'm not going to repeat it here. So. Right. It was a very <laughs> famous um, uh, hot spot for a while. Let's put it that way. I think it's time to get right to this clip. Pre-governor of Minnesota, but at the time, just still a major superstar in film and everything else. Here is the one and the only Jesse the Body Ventura. Jesse, I'd like to welcome you to the Pro Wrestling Spotlight. Thanks, John. I've heard a lot about your show. I hear, I hear it's a terrific show. I wish I could hear it, but I'm in Minneapolis, and it's pretty hard to get New York. Yeah, well, there's uh, this concept of wrestling talk radio has now been uh, going around for a few years uh, we've been doing our show since 89, and I understand at the station that you're affiliated with, KFAN, out in uh, Minneapolis, there's a wrestling talk show also uh, uh, hosted by Wade Keller. Yeah, that's correct. I haven't had a chance to hear it yet because uh, KFAN keeps me pretty busy with the Vikings, but uh, 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 as I understand it, Wade's on there, and it's it's a very popular show. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, these types of shows with pro wrestling talk uh, gives the fans an opportunity to, uh, uh, to really speak about what's happening in the... Uh, business of pro professional wrestling today, but uh, Jesse, you uh, have been a figure in professional wrestling that has uh, been controversial, been loved. Uh, uh, right now, you are involved in many different areas of entertainment and sports. Uh, first, uh, you have a brand new television show. Uh, called Grudge Match, and uh, please tell us how you got involved with that. Well, uh, first of all, I'd just like to state to all the wrestling fans out there, believe me, there is life after Vince. Uh-huh. <laughs> A lot of people who leave the WWF uh, or in the WWF right now don't think there is, but... Uh, uh, there is life after events and a lot of things shaking in the WWF, which we'd like to talk to you about briefly. But uh... Okay, well, first we'll talk about the grudge match. Sure. Yeah, I got involved in the grudge match, actually. I was out in Los Angeles doing an episode of Hunter last fall with Freddie Dreyer, you know, the NBC show. It's cut now, but at the time it was going strong. 
and uh, I was on hold for two days, and uh, Rich Malcolm, who produced the grudge match and came up with the concept and the idea of it, uh, called my manager, Barry Bloom, and said that I've been told that this show, Jesse the Body Ventura, would be a perfect host for it, and Rich didn't even know me. You know, he just asked around L.A., he had the concept, and he said, who do you think would make a great commentator for this? And I guess a half a dozen people in Los Angeles said, get Jesse the body for this. Sure. And uh, so I heard about the concept of people with legitimate grudges actually going into a ring and settling these grudges, and it sounded so bizarre to me. And I was on hold this particular day from shooting anyway, and I live in Minneapolis, so when I'm in L.A., I love to work as much as I can because if you don't, you just end up sitting in a hotel room watching TV, and that gets boring, and uh, all day long anyway. Yeah. So uh, uh, I said, yeah, I'll do the pilot for it. So we did the pilot for the grudge match out, out in Reseda out there at a little arena, and uh, it was a rough thing, and they took it to the Nappy Convention, and it got bought up like hotcakes, and we went back into production in June, at the, as part of the Universal Tour, so the fans that we get for every show, we, we seat about six to 700 in the arena, and they actually pick the winner. They, you know, yeah, they, they do. They red, vote on it, right? Huh? They vote on the winner, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they have a red and a, a box with a red button and a blue button, and at the end of the three rounds, it's the fans that choose the winner. So, uh, and, and what the concept is, we take people with legitimate grudges, we interview them, we cut the interviews where they go back and forth and tell their side of the story, and then they step into a ring, and we treat it professionally, we, the production, we treat it like it's the Vander Holyfield Mike Tyson fight. Oh yeah, I've seen the show here in the New York area, it airs on uh, WNBC, Yeah. Uh, late Saturday nights, oh, the, and uh, I have seen the show, and... Uh, the, the production's I, terrific, Yes, isn't it, it is. John? Yes, it is. It's, it's a really a well done production-wise, and uh, even watching the, the folks who have grudges against each other do uh, quasi-wrestling interviews before they step into the ring, a lot of them are serious in it. Uh, uh, from the shows I've seen, uh, sometimes it almost gets out of hand in there. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're, they're a total go. Yeah, I, I know. Mean, there's nothing set up on this whatsoever. Uh, those people get into the ring, and they go at it. Because, see, we tried it with a few st quote-unquote stars. You know, we thought that would bring a little fla flavor to it. And the stars get in the ring, and they don't want to go for it. And, and you can tell it immediately. In fact, there was one particular one was so bad, I just said in the, my headset to Bob Dunphy, I said, I'm not doing this, and I threw my headset down. I said, this is ridiculous. It's, a, it's an insult to us, and it's an insult to all the regular people who got in there and went at it legitimately. Yeah, it kind of might have taken away from the program. And, uh, oh, it would kill the program. Yeah. If, if the people think for one minute it's a setup, the program's dead. Yes. You know, and, and that's our key is that these people are regular, everyday people, and they get in there. And see, they, the people, don't realize how long three one-minute rounds are. You know, they have no concept when you're out there putting out that physical energy like that and the intensity and the lights and the adrenaline, how draining it is because the boxing usually tires them out real well yeah there's three different rounds three different uh, uh areas of grudges uh, not areas of grudges but different types of weapons that they could use right we uh, had one guy in fact came back uh, we got it on super slow-mo stop action it's terrific a guy came back after the first round and threw up wow i mean what what could be better i mean what's better television than watching somebody heave right in super slow-mo in super slow-mo stop action that's great <laughs> i don't know if that'll get on the air or not but i know we got it on tape <laughs> how many sh how many shows have you taped so far we've done 26 
So we're, we're pretty much uh, going to see Grudge Match each and every Saturday night here. At least Absolutely, for... and hopefully you'll see it next year. Well, that's great. Jesse, uh, I know you're a very busy guy, and uh, uh, you have been out of the professional wrestling business now for a little over a year. We still get calls uh, all the time asking about you and what the circumstances were uh, regarding your departure from the world of pro wrestling and uh, the WWF. Now, um, what we have heard is that it was over a... Uh, uh, disagreement over a license for a computer game. Uh, can you clarify that for us? Yeah, that's absolutely true. It, uh, you know, uh, Vince likes to own his people. You know, I, I think back in the 1800s they called it slavery. Uh -huh. Today it would be slavery with pay. Yeah. And uh, no, what it was was uh, uh, I I own the rights to my name, and I and I can license it to whomever I want because it's me. And uh, I was approached by Sega Genesis, uh, the video company, to come out with a Jesse the Body Ventura wrestling video, which should be out shortly. I mean, it should be out as we speak almost. It's supposed to be out in October. And uh, I was honorable about it, and I said, Vince, I'm going to do this. And he basically said back to me, you can't, that's conflict of interest because we're with Nintendo. But it really isn't because uh, if you're familiar with video games, Nintendo's an 8-bit, Sega's a 16. You can't interchange them. You either buy the Sega system or you buy the Nintendo system. And uh, I was given an ultimatum that if I, if I did this deal, that uh, my job would be in jeopardy. Well, that's the worst thing you can say to me is to back me into a corner because I can be an animal when I get backed into the corner. And so I took it as a personal insult a little bit, and I called my manager, Barry Bloom, and I said, uh, make the Sega deal fly. And so we did, and uh, we, we signed a, a, a deal with Sega to do this video game, and the WWF in turn then, I suppose, felt they, you know, that uh, they had to let me go. So they did. Well, we've been hearing uh, rumors. There's always rumors in pro wrestling, as you know. Uh, the rumor mill is always uh, hot with uh, different speculation. Uh -huh. And what we've been hearing recently is that uh, you have opened up discussions again with uh, Titan Sports and the WWF about a possible return to the announcer's booth. No, I can unequivocally tell you right now that's totally false. We, In fact, we haven't even spoke. I haven't spoken to the WWF on a business thing since way, way last spring. And that was over the fact, see, uh, Vince and I had a bit of a gentleman's agreement that... Uh, you know, if when I left the WWF, if I was approached by any other wrestling group to please give him a courtesy call. And so at the time, you're familiar with, you know, Joe, remember when all that uh, scuttlebutt was going around that Joe Petticino had all this big money? Yes. Well, Petticino approached me and made me a very lucrative offer. Well, it turned out apparently he lost the money or didn't get that big money, but he did make me a very lucrative offer, actually a, a better money than I had made with WWF, which wasn't bad, because mm -hmm. I was knocking down some pretty good money with them. And uh, so I gave, I gave Titan Sports the courtesy of, call, uh, oh, well, my manager did, Barry, of, uh, of calling them just to, you know, fulfill our obligation to them and be honorable and say, hey, we've got an offer from another wrestling group, what would you like to do about it? And uh, you're going to love their reply. What they was it? came back uh, about, a week, about two days later, and the response was, well, we're really not sure how we would use Jesse. Huh. And so the minute I heard that from my manager, I said, tell him, fine, we fulfilled our obligation. There's no further reason to talk, because that's ridiculous. 
Yeah, I mean, they're playing games. I mean, I'm the best. I, I'm the best color man wrestling's ever had. Well, you're not going to have any uh, disagreements here on that part. A lot of people have said that, and I feel the same way. That yeah, uh, your 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 uh, partnership with uh, McMahon and the announcers booth for superstars of wrestling and the pay-per-views and everything else you did, uh, there was no color man like you. Yeah. Now, now there's another group down in Atlanta, obviously Ted Turner's World Championship Wrestling, sure. which is floundering right now. Uh, have you ever talked to them about possibly going into uh, to work for them? Yeah. Well, they they've they're another real organization too. Uh, they've spoken to me. They've made contact with me three times between since I left Titan and now, and. They make contact, and, and they'll call me personally, and I tell them, call my manager, Barry Bloom, because Barry's in L.A. He handles my career totally, Yeah, and which is something that's very unusual, as you know, John, for wrestling. Yes, I, it in is. In fact, I was the first wrestler who brought outside representation in and made Vince deal with it. Well, the business needs it. Oh, absolutely it does. And uh, But the Turner people call up, like, in fact, the, the last one was June. I get a call from Tony Schiavone. You're going to love this one. He calls me at home, and he says, Jesse, we want to upgrade our television. We're going to go after Vince. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. You're the best color man in the business. We want you to come and work for us. I said, great. I said, uh, you know, call Barry Bloom tomorrow. You know, it was late in the night. And I said, call Barry Bloom tomorrow morning. And we'll be happy to listen to, you know, any offer or anything from you. You know, that's fine. And uh, he says, okay, he gets Barry's number, all this, all that. Tony did, and, uh, you know, and Tony's a friend of mine. He never called. That's what, that's what the Turner people have done to me three times. They call up, they tell me they want me, and then they, they won't call Barry Bloom or make an offer or anything. So I think per personally that Turner's not real interested in wrestling and that they're just blowing smoke. Well, that organization certainly uh, has lost uh, most of the talent that has gone through that uh, down there over the last few years, and including Ric Flair, who's now with Titan Sports. Right. Uh, so uh, you're not adverse to getting back into the wrestling business if the opportunity was there and if the situation was right. Well, you, you never say never about anything, but, uh, you know, to be honest with you right now, John, I don't even think about wrestling. I mean, I've got a movie coming out in a couple weeks called Ricochet with Denzel Washington and John Lithgow. I got the grudge match that that's doing phenomenally great right now, and I'm I'm looking at it for sure. It's going to get picked up for another season, I think. And I'm I also am the color commentator for the Minnesota Vikings every Sunday now. After two years of working with Tampa, I got the Minnesota Viking job, plus being the mayor. So to be perfectly honest, I don't even think about wrestling, and that's why I made the, the statement. You know, there is indeed life after Vince because uh, I'm doing great, and financially I'm doing fine. And, uh, you know, it, I think it'd be more to their benefit to get me back than me needing to go back to them. And, uh, you know, and that's how I feel about it. I'm not bitter over it. You know, I had a great 15-year career with wrestling, 11 in the ring and about five as a broadcaster. And it's catapulted me to many other, you know, things. And, uh, you know, wrestling was a big part of my life, and I enjoyed it tremendously. But life does go on, and, and I don't lose any sleep over it. And, uh, you know, and, and actually... To be honest, I was glad I was out of wrestling when all this steroid stuff came down because who needs that kind of publicity? Yeah, I wanted to touch base with you briefly about that. I know uh, we only have a few minutes left here. Uh, there is a major problem right now with steroids in professional wrestling and the Dr. George Zaharian uh, right. uh, trial back in June. And uh, uh, there is a lot of talk right now that even more uh, names will be disclosed in the next couple of weeks uh, through stories that are about to break down in Florida. Uh, 
What do you feel uh, should be done about uh, steroids in professional wrestling today, Jesse? Well, I, I don't feel that steroids are alone in professional wrestling as well as other sports. Well, it's all sports, right? Yeah. Basically, you want to talk about just steroids, and, and it's a cut-and-dry situation. In 1988, they were made a felony to use them, and it's that simple. They're against the law. It's no different than somebody using cocaine if they're using steroids illegally. They're breaking the law. And uh, whether it be football, as in the Alzado case, whether it be baseball, track, or wrestling, steroids are bad news. I went publicly a few years ago, about four years ago, with a huge poster with the FDA speaking out against steroids. And, uh, and I tried them, you know, and I went publicly about it. And I, I kind of find it humorous when you start hearing people saying they've never used them. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on, don't insult my intelligence. Well, you know, and don't insult the other people's intelligence. Uh, you know, people are not as stupid as some people think that they are. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, and, and steroids are a major problem. They're very dangerous, and they need to be cleaned up, and some people need to make a stand and come clean and be honest about it. Well, superstar Billy Graham out on the West Coast has uh, had his problems uh, after years of steroid abuse. And, sure. Uh, and uh, you look at a guy like Billy who is... Uh, who was one of the top performers in his day, and now uh, just uh, not able to walk in the sterility and every, yep. all the other problems that has happened to him, uh, you just really look at it and say, geez, you know, five years from now, ten years from now, uh, there are so many wrestlers and so many athletes in sports. What is going to happen to them? What's the future for these guys? Well, you got to look at society in general, because in a way it's, a, it's an indictment against our society because... The will to win and the will to be number one supersedes and, and takes over common sense. And so let, look at society as a whole. Nobody ever remembers who came in second. That's right. So as athletes, the will to win that is put into you at a very young age and pounded in you, you must win first place, first place, first place, not just to compete. I felt great this year because I took part in the Special Olympics for the handicapped. And to me, that's the only true form of athleticism left today. Because there you have people who are just thrilled to be able to compete rather than winning is irrelevant. One of a kind, John. Wow. One of a kind. And, uh, yeah, I mean, what a great uh, way to end uh, today's show with uh, Jesse, the Body Ventura clip. And, of course, if you want to hear the entire episode, uh, entire show, originally broadcast in its entirety, patreon.com slash John Arezzi. But um, yeah, Bob, I mean, uh, great job today pulling some of these clips. Well, thank you, sir. I much appreciate it. And you know what? It's not work. It's fun. I feel yeah. so much younger doing this stuff. I got to tell you, people are saying, well, how come you're so bouncy lately? I'm going, because I'm on the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast. That's why. And I'm serious about this. People are saying, what's with you? I'm like, well, I'm talking to people I like about stuff that I was in love with my entire life, and I, it's taken the edge off of life. So thank you to yeah, everybody involved. Yeah, I mean, it's been really cool because I've seen uh, so many comments now about the new format uh, since we started this, and so many people are really loving this new format. It's certainly unlike what we did uh, previously. Uh, but I think that uh, each and every week uh, we're going to be able to offer a really unique perspective of history. And that's what we're doing. Uh, and 
I just love the way everything is unfolding here with Alex doing an incredible job that she's doing uh, on the editing front and, uh, you know, assisting us greatly now with the distribution of this program. And Bob, your, you know, your background, your history, your knowledge, uh, your experience, and, you know, me providing the history with the old shows. Uh, it's kind of a really special and very unique uh, look back at history at pro wrestling. I think it's really important. You know, call me corny. I think what we're doing is kind of important because I, I don't want this era of wrestling that you and I covered to be forgotten. And so many of these these stars, as the years go by, you know, we every decade we get new superstars and we have the stars that we have now. But I think it's important to keep wrestling history alive, either through the Hall of Fame or through shows like this, or through simply old timers like us saying what we've seen and what we've experienced. It, it'll, it'll give wrestling fans a greater breadth of knowledge, and I, it, that always makes it more fun when you when you learn about things you may not have heard about before. Yeah, it's all about the history, and and uh, you know even while we're here, and this we're going to wrap up today's edition of the show, and uh, really good episode, uh, episode number three of the of the new Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, and uh, you know even since we've been uh, recording tonight. Uh, I've been getting messages on my Patreon from fans who, because I said, you know, give us your names. We'll shout you out. And um, even since we started recording, we've heard from uh, Dave uh, Claroni from uh, from uh, Maine, Andy Toth from Chicago, Illinois, Jared England from uh, Finley, Ohio, and Morgan Williams from Hyannisport, Massachusetts. So we want to thank them uh for being patrons as well. And you can join uh, our patron page. Uh, just go to uh, patreon.com slash John Arezzi, and uh, you'll be able to just kind of just go there and peruse what the levels are. And for five bucks a month, I mean, you'll get an opportunity to get all the archives of the shows uh, for all the years we were on the air in their entirety. And uh, these podcasts will be released to you uh, several days early each and every week. And uh, you can join our private group at Facebook. We have a group there. Just go to facebook.com slash Pro Wrestling Spotlight Podcast and Radio Show. Uh, we have a public page on Facebook as well to share history, and that's uh, simply facebook.com, John Arezzi's Matt Memories. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel uh, that will feature clips of all of our shows uh, on this podcast, highlights, Go to youtube.com slash John Arezzi's memories. You can follow me on Twitter at John Arezzi. Instagram is at John Arezzi as well. Uh, I still have signed and numbered copies of my book, Matt Memories, which came out earlier this year. Just send an email to me if you're interested in one of those signed and numbered books. Simply John at mattmemories.com. And for our merchandise line, and we're coming up with new designs uh, uh, with Christian Theodore over the next week, but we have some great inventory there right now, tinyurl.com slash store. You can follow Alex, Alex Robertson, at She's A-Rob. And Alex, I want to know the backstory of She's A-Rob. Please uh, wow. explain that. So when I was in high school... I went to a specialized school where it was everyone that played a sport at a high level. We went to school half the day and then the other half of the day we played our sport. So I was a hockey player, ice hockey player. 
and uh, which meant I was around boys all of the time who have these crazy, insane nicknames. If you're a hockey player, you know exactly what I mean. And uh, they thought, well, we're not going to leave you out just because, you know, you're a girl. So we're going to have to come up with a nickname. And for some reason, they were, I guess, obsessed with A-Rod, the yes. baseball player. Um, he must have been in the news for something at, at, at that Always time. Always in the news. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so they thought, well, it's kind of similar. So we'll just we'll start calling you A-Rob. And then when I started my broadcasting career as an intern um, at TSN 690, which is our sports station in uh, Montreal, they asked me, what's your nickname? Because there too, they use nicknames. So I just used the same one that I used from high school and it just, it just stuck with them too. So I guess it, I'm with it for life now. Alex Robertson, go to Twitter and follow her at She's A Rob. And Bob, you have a Twitter account as well. And uh, there's got to be a story behind your Twitter handle too. It's at Bob underscore Bob Bahumba. Bahumba with an Bahumba. Bahumba. So let me let me underscore Bahumba. Go ahead, Bob. Yes, Bahumba. Well, you know, it just occurred to me where that word came from. It was once uttered by the late great comedian from SCTV and Saturday Night Live, Tony Rosato. Nice Italian okay. fellow. A nice Italian and boy. He, Yes, and I never heard that expression or word before, so I stole it. And and I was an independent recording artist at that point in time, right? As, the, the music bug hit me around 92, 93. And I used it as a label that I created myself. And one other artist, the late Frankie Paris from New York City, was also signed to my label. And we sold enough records and I did enough touring that I got signed to a larger label called Fountain Blue and made the greatest record that I ever could have made produced by Duke Robillard, who was the founder of Roomful of Blues. And wow. I had guests from the BB King orchestra on, on the, on, it's called Metropolitan Blue. And my recording name was Robert Charles, but it's spe spelled C H A R E L S. All of my music is absolutely free on amazon.com cool. and Spotify. Awesome. Look for it. Yeah. I, I'm going to check it out myself, Bob. Yes. That's Robert cool. Charles, C H A R E L S. And I, I work with some amazing musicians Jam with B.B. King 10 times. I had a wonderful music career. I wouldn't trade my place. I'm not famous or rich, but I had a blast, and that's all that counts. I mean, that's you know, and we, made some, we made some damn good music, too. So if anybody likes yeah. blues music or R&B, give, give it a listen, because uh, people wondered why I faded away from the wrestling scene, why I got bitten by the music bug, and I pursued it and ex exceeded my own expectations tenfold and uh i'm a little old in the tooth to get in a van and drive to cincinnati now so i'm not doing that anymore but um i do have memories that will last a lifetime well there you go i'd check it out and uh that's a great story bob thank you so much uh for everybody out there please give this podcast five stars if you're listening on apple podcasts and review the show there and uh please tell your friends about us as well share the show links help us build this audience help us build this community it's greatly appreciated and next week we will have the original broadcast of october 1991 with guests including hot stuff eddie gilbert uh who gets on the air with a wild herb abrams now this was this is a crazy segment bob so uh, when you're listening to pull the clips Herb calls in unannounced. He's uh, on something. He's <laughs> threatening to sue everyone. He was saying Andre the Giant was still under contract. Eddie Gilbert's on the line. 
Eddie had never spoken to Herb before. Herb just called in out of the blue. And uh, so, I mean, it's a hilarious segment. And, and, and Herb was flying. I don't know what he was doing, but he was flying. Um, uh, so make sure when you tune in next week, you'll hear that. Uh, and then we also have uh, Buddy Rogers comes back to talk wow. about, uh, I believe, his refereeing at a Joel Goodhart show. So we have a great, great segment with Buddy. And then we have some explosive stuff with Paulie Dangerously, because that's right around the time where he gets fired. He leaves WCW again. He sues them. Uh, and I actually got him as attorney who sued WCW. And we uh, uh, we will be covering that all on next week's program. Also, Dave Meltzer, Wade Keller, Steve Beverly. Uh, you know, so we have a whole uh, month of October uh, to cover, and that'll be on next week's program. I want to remind everybody that John Arezzi's Pro Wrestling Spotlight Podcast is a production of Matt Memories, LLC. Our co-host is Bob Smith. Our producer and editor is the wonderful Alex Robertson, A-Rob. Uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight's creative manager is our friend Marsh. And that's, a, that's what he wants to be known as, just simply Marsh. Until next week, when we share more history with you, this is John Arezzi, for the Pro Wrestling Spotlight.